That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I get asked all the time, uh, what do I like to cover the most? In fact, I had a uh, classroom of high school students who asked me that yesterday. Hey, what do you like to cover the most? And, and, and look, i got to be honest, uh, I love college football. I, I like covering college ath- athletes in particular because I think you get a different kind of authenticity from college kids who are uh, largely not jaded by the the stuff that bleeds into the professional world, the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball. I think athletes that are professional athletes in today's world are often letting us see what they want us to see, what they want us to think they're about. And and look, I, I'm not knocking it. It's just more of a, a sign of the times. It's Damian Lillard, Inc. It's C.J. McCollum, Inc. I think uh, there are a lot of people who will look at the professional athlete in today's world and see that professional athlete as as a corporation. Um, but college athletes, uh, I think, genuinely will give us and let us have a peek into who they really are. Uh, real joy, uh, for example, on Sunday as Washington State, the women's team, won the Pac-12 tournament championship and advanced uh, to to the NCAA tournament with the automatic bid as a seven seed. There were players doing snow angels on the court in the confetti and crying openly. And, and, and as we speak, in the final seconds in Las Vegas, the University of Portland is putting the finishing touches on a victory over Gonzaga that uh, will send Portland to the NCAA tournament. It's not a final yet, 63-60. There's no time on the clock. The officials are just about to rule whether they should put two-tenths or four-tenths of a second back on the clock or if they're just going to wave this thing off. But the University of Portland is going to beat Gonzaga in women's college basketball and advance to the NCAA tournament for the second time in three years under Michael Meek. It is a remarkable story. The players are all smiling on the bench. They're getting ready to jump around. They're getting ready to celebrate. Uh, Of course, uh, they put 1.7 seconds back on the clock, but Portland is shooting free throws. And one more free throw will ice this thing. Uh, it, it appears that the pilots will be dancing for the second time in three years. And frankly, they didn't get to go to the NCAA tournament two years ago after they won the automatic bid. It got canceled. And I think in the end, the reason why I like to watch college athletes, maybe more so than professional athletes, comes down to the innocence and authenticity that you see with college athletes and and I I do think um, you know as I have spent time in sports uh, it is a final by the way in Vegas 64-60 Portland has defeated Gonzaga a remarkable 
uh, performance for the pilots. They seized the WCC championship. They're going to the NCAA tournament. Uh, remarkable 64-60 win, and they're jumping around the court. They are literally jumping around the court. I don't see a lot of tears. I see a lot of smiles. I see a lot of authenticity, and I see a lot of purple on the television screen, but it's just one of those reminders that college athletes are still college kids. I do worry, though, about name image likeness and the collectives and the money that is bleeding into college athletics. And, and, and I'm not in the position of like, hey, I'm like an old-timer, hardliner, uh, traditionalist, purist, whatever you want to say, like, hey, I believe that these should be amateurs. I do believe kids should be allowed to earn uh, on their name, image, and likeness. And I think there are some positives that have come from NIL legislation. But uh, I also think that as you uh, look at college sports, we're going to get some cases, and I think a case that we're going to talk about on today's show, of an athlete at the uh, who's headed to the University of Oregon, uh, Jurion Dickey, a five-star receiver. Piece written about him today in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, sort of outlining his attitude towards name, image, likeness and being an earner in today's college football world. Now, uh, Jurion and I have messaged. We are, are efforting getting him on the show. It has been a little bit uh, laborious, uh, to say the least, to try to get him on the show. But he, uh, he is the subject of the piece in the San Francisco Chronicle. And, he, you know, apparently he's driving around the Bay Area and he's driving a Mercedes. And he uh, quit his job and he's quoted in the piece as saying, Hey, I've got, um, I, you know, my job now is to be a college football player. But he's not on campus yet at Oregon. He's not inside the program. And one of the negative byproducts that's going to come from all this is going to be the perception that he already has an NIL deal and he's not on campus. And we're going to talk to the author of the piece, Connor Letourneau, coming up about Jury and Dickey and maybe some other kids across college sports who have seen name, image, likeness deals, who see some of that money early, who are, haven't yet made it to a campus and, you know, for, you know, are either, uh, you know, driving around a car because somebody in the family said, hey, I know you're going to get the money eventually. Let me get you that car now. Or they are uh, at least giving off the perception that the money comes before they get to campus. And I don't think that's necessarily a positive thing. And it feels too much like the NFL draft is coming player just participated in the combine and and now has uh, is driving around a Mercedes on campus and we've all seen those cases but uh, you know the best of college athletics I think we're gonna see it this month in March we're going to see teams that win NCAA tournament games in the first and second round in the sweet 16 and the elite eight that are going to celebrate like kids like college kids celebrate on the court and we're going to see surprise finishes and we're going to see great theater and we're going to see one shining moment at the end. And I'm really curious to see if college athletics can hold on to the idea or at least the concept of it being different than professional sports. And I think this tournament is going to be a really interesting one because we're starting to see some shifting in the college landscape with, with some of the players in football in particular making a, a whole bunch of money to go play college football at different universities. Will we see a separation within the sports where the non-revenue generating sports, maybe the athletes who don't get the seven-figure NIL deals are going to maintain sort of the idea of amateurism and the spirit of college athletics, and then the rest are going to maybe as a herd move in a different direction? I don't know. But it's on my mind today as, as we speak as the University of Portland beats Gonzaga 
64-60. The, uh, the pilots have seized the uh, women's WCC tournament title in Vegas. They're getting the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. It's a remarkable story. We'll talk to the uh, University of Portland Athletic Director, Scott Lakeham, coming up at 4 o'clock today. We'll talk to the author of the piece about Jurian Dickey today in the San Francisco Chronicle. We'll talk to Connor Letourneau at, uh, at 3.30 in about 20 minutes. And later in the program, we're going to talk about Gert Boyle. I wrote about her today online at johnconzano.com. If you are already subscribed, you already got it. You got it in real time this morning. Grab a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. But Gert Boyle had a birthday this week. Um, and if she were still alive, she'd be 99. So Monday was her birthday. I, I uh, talked to her son, Tim, who is the CEO of Columbia this morning. And Tim just said he misses her so much. And I think there's so many people who don't know the story of Columbia Sportswear, who don't know that this started as a hat company and that Gert Boyle, uh, you know, her father founded this company and really was just making hats and then started to get into other products. And then in 1970, in late 1970, her husband, Neil, had a heart attack and passed away. They had three children. And Tim was uh, in his 20s and in college when that happened. And all of a sudden, their life uh, was spun around, turned upside down. Use whatever metaphor you want. But Gert Boyle could have sold the company to a partner, could have given it up. There wasn't a lot of money in it. The bankers were calling, saying, hey, your bills are coming due, and uh, we know you don't have a whole bunch of revenue. And she really didn't know what she was doing running a company. She was a stay-at-home mother of three and in her mid-40s. And so together with her kids, Gert Boyle you know, put her nose down and said, look, I've got to adapt. I've got to figure this out. And she got some help from Nike. One of the bankers told her, go talk to Phil Knight over at Nike setting up camp, and he seems to have figured something out in Asia. And Gert Boyle went and talked to Phil Knight and got some, invi uh, got some advice on how to source uh, materials and how to source labor in Asia. And Columbia Sportswear ended up not just surviving but thriving. And you talk about a company now that had uh, you know, a, a record revenue quarter, a record revenue year in 2022 and you look at a company now that has employed tens of thousands of people in our region everybody talks about nike columbia is right there with them and you know not quite as big as a footprint not quite as big as a company but three and a half billion dollars in sales last year there was a record year for columbia and the legend of gert boyle the the uh the tough uh that that tough mother that was uh, the subject of all those tv commercials in our region uh, lives on. Uh, we'll talk later in the program with uh, a close family friend, uh, Carrie Timchuk of the Oregon Historical Society, will be joining us to talk about Gert Boyle and other things in the five o'clock hour. Um, I want to ask you guys, Stephen, Judah, you look at you know the University of Portland women's team dancing around on the court. They're going dancing. They get the automatic bid in the WCC. They upset Gonzaga in the title game. It's a two seed over a one seed. Not a huge upset, but an upset nonetheless. Um, you know, you have that kind of charm, that kind of innocence, that kind of authenticity. How does that, how do you frame that against the NIL world that we're seeing emerge in college athletics? I mean, that's what we talk about when we talk about professional athletes or, you know, now you even say like high college or high major uh, college basketball, college football players. Like, 
they just you want to see more emotion. You want to see them care because that's what the fans do. The fans care about this. And so when you see these smaller conferences or these players that aren't making as much money and they get to go to the NCAA tournament and they're just so excited like that that that's what gets me going. Like I love that. Um, you know, because that, that was my dream. My dream was to go play in the NCAA tournament. I wasn't good enough. I wish I was, but I wasn't. And like that would be that that would be me out on the court. Like I would be going crazy if we if I ever had made it. And so for me, like this is the best time of the year. Like watching these kids, uh, you know, participate and thrive on the biggest stage. You know, it, it's such a fun thing to do and a fun thing to watch. So you know, big shout out, big props to the University of Portland uh, women's team right there to pull off that upset and get the NCAA tournament. You know, it's got to be a big dream for a lot of those kids. And, uh, you know, a little local ties here. I love, love it. Yeah, another uh, George Fox coach uh, winning big at his next steps, right? Michael Meek doing great things, friend of the show. Whenever we got friends of the show accomplishing big things, it, it makes you happy. And uh, the women's game, John, I mean, it's so much fun to watch. Um, you know, just both for the for the style, but also what Steven said, the the emotion and the camaraderie and the effort is so palpable. It's so authentic. And uh, when you get big moments like this, it's worth celebrating. Yeah. And I think, you know, are you guys afraid that we're going to lose some of that with seven figure, six figure deals? Kid like Jerry on Dickey driving around the Bay Area in a white Mercedes, you know, saying, hey, I've made it. And he isn't even to campus in Eugene. Or how do you how do we rectify that? Yeah, 100%. I, I am worried about that. And that was the whole thing about paying these athletes. Like, they are already getting you know money for stipends and things of that nature. And I'm not against them making money. I'm not saying that. But there's got to be some type of cap on it. When when you're paying these kids you know millions of dollars, it's not a collegiate. It's not amateur sports anymore. It's a professional league. And that's the way it's going to be treated. That's the way they're going to go about it. It's going to be about their brands. It's going to be about staying healthy so they can get that next big contract, whether it's in the NFL or the NBA. So I am worried about it, John, um, as a guy that loves college sports even more than the professional sports. I just I, I find, you know, just the passion and the pageantry way more fun uh, on that side of the that side of the coin. So I am worried about it. I don't know what to do. You, you just got to somehow cap it off with the, the amount of money you can make, I guess, with the NIL because it's – when they get up to the millions, like, that's probably too much. Like, they're already getting, you know, education. I know people don't care about the education, but it does matter. And these kids are making money off of the schools, and the schools are making money off the kids. But if it wasn't for the schools – for a lot of these, for a lot of the athletes, like they wouldn't be doing anything. They wouldn't be going to school. They wouldn't be having a chance to have a job after college if they're not good enough back in that hometown. So, like, there's a lot of positives that you can get out of going to college and playing. A, you know, a, even if it's a small college, like you're going to be able to be set up for life after that. And I, I think there's a lot of benefits just by playing college sports. So for me, it, it, it's a little worrisome that it's going so professional with all this money being around. Yeah, and I, I worry about the timing of it in Dickey's case. He's a five-star commit. He's not on campus yet. Uh, presumably, he doesn't have NIL money in his pocket yet, but he is, um, you know, he's on his way there. He's not going to be a spring football participant at Oregon. He's going to be a guy that enrolls in the fall, and he's kind of driving around and driving the narrative that he may have already received money when, you know, the collective at, at Oregon Division Street is is not yet allowed to hand out money. And so I think there's a little bit of a problem there. And I get it. Like, it's just like the draft. Like, you can get a lot of people that will float you alone when they know money's coming. So in Jury and Dickey's case, could be a family member, could be somebody else going, hey, we know he's going to get paid. He's got an NIL deal coming down the pipeline from Oregon. And uh, in the meantime, kid, here's a Mercedes for you to drive around, uh, you know, between now and when you enroll. 
Do you think, would it make more sense if NIL was available for, you know, sophomores on up? Like, get yes. the freshmen in. Don't make it available for freshmen, because then it helps mitigate a little bit the recruiting abuses, <laughs> whether legal or illegal at this point. I don't really know. The lines are so blurry. But it also might, you know, lessen some of these Jerry and Dickey type of cases where you haven't done a dang thing yet. No. You've not played it down at college football. You've not made one catch. You've not made one big play. Why are you acting like it already? Yeah. And it leads me to believe, like, to me it's a judgment thing. And and look, I've had some interactions with Jerry, and he, he seems like a nice kid. He, you know, I'm dealing with a high school kid, and I, I've been trying to book him on the show, and we've been – going back and forth, and at times I said it was laborious. It's just like one day I said to him, hey, can you come on today? He didn't respond, and then out of the blue he said, yes, I can come on right now, like two minutes before he was supposed to come on, and I said, mm, that's not how it works. We need, I need you to set an appointment with me, and then we can promote that you're going to be on the show, and then we'll have you on the show. And we've gone back and forth a few times of it. It kind of suggests to me some of his quotes, and maybe we can find this out from Connor Letourneau when he comes on. It suggests to me that I hope he has someone in his corner who is going to serve as kind of the uh, the the person who tethers him and says, hey, like what Judah, what you just said, you haven't done anything yet. Uh, you need to get to campus. It's cool that you have this car. It's great that, you, you know, there's some money coming, but let's uh, let's pump the brakes a little bit on the Mercedes Benz, so to speak. Uh, all right, leave it here. We got Connor Letourneau coming up here in a few minutes. Uh, he'll tell us all about what he knew and what he learned and spending some time with Oregon's five-star receiver. Uh, I talked to Dan Lanning today. In the next segment, I'll tell you what he said about his defense. I asked him, I pressed him on the subject, how much better can the defense be at Oregon? That and much more still ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest, one of my favorite people in sports media, certainly in journalism, former colleague, now at the San Francisco Chronicle, Connor Letourneau, senior writer there. Uh, he wrote a piece today uh, titled Inside the Wild West of NIL, and he focused on a Bay Area five-star commit that is headed to the University of Oregon, Jurian Dickey. Wide receiver there. It's a fantastic piece. If you get a chance to uh, to read it, give it a read. I've tweeted out a link to it. But we're talking about a 17-year-old senior at Menlo Atherton High School who is driving around in a Mercedes and hasn't really done anything in college yet but headed to the University of Oregon. And he is among a growing number of high school players who are making money in the NIL world. Here to talk about it, Connor Letourneau of the Chronicle. Nice job. Give me an idea, Connor. Like when you started out, why Jury and Dickey? Why this piece? Yeah, so I actually initially wanted to focus the story on Jaden Rashada, who's a four-star quarterback in, uh, out of Pittsburgh High School in the Bay Area. And a lot of people might know that name because he got a bunch of national attention a couple months ago for kind of having a, an NIL deal with, Florida go awry, and it kind of served as a cautionary tale for NIL and, and the role that recruiting plays in NIL. And I actually, back in October, was interested in doing something on Jaden before all that, and he wasn't interested. And so 
uh, I reached out to Jurion because I know he was in that space as well, and uh, he was much more receptive to it. Spent some time with him uh, back in January for that piece, and I just wanted to get at what is life like for a top recruit in the, this world where you have major universities with collectives that are shelling out seven-figure, sometimes even eight-figure NIL deals. And on top of that, they have endorsement contracts and all that. So it was a fascinating story to report. Give me an idea, because this is part of a larger series that you're working on with NIL in particular, the Wild West of it, what it means for athletes in non-revenue-generating sports versus revenue-generating sports. And you get, you get a kid like uh, Jurion who is willing to participate. Did he have any reluctance in talking about this, or is he of the mindset that, hey, some publicity here is good for the brand? I think he definitely understood that being, you know, front page of the San Francisco Chronicle was going to be a good thing for him. But um, he, 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 at a young age, he definitely has an awareness of branding and, and kind of getting his name out there. But he, he was pretty open. The only things he wouldn't talk about were specific numbers. You know, he, he wouldn't talk about how much NIL money he's getting from Oregon's collective and things like that. Um, but he did – he did allude to some big offers. He said he turned down a million-dollar offer because um, just the the conditions of the deal weren't great and, and things like that. I mean, he's a five-star guy, and pretty much all these five-star guys are getting either high six-figure or seven-figure deals. It's crazy. Connor Letourneau, San Francisco's Chronicle, is with us. I've tweeted out a link to the piece if you want to go to my Twitter timeline. Um, you know, he's not a guy who's on campus yet. The collectives are supposed to wait until kids get enrolled. Uh, how is he driving around in a Mercedes, or how does he rectify that? So on3.com, which is probably the best resource for a lot of this stuff, they, they have like a evaluation, and it's just basically an estimate of what they believe certain athletes are making in a given year. They put his estimation at north of $230,000 a year. So, okay. you know, if he's truly making north of 200k, it's not out of the realm of possibility for him to be able to go buy a Mercedes-Benz, you know. And so he does have a 2021 Mercedes-Benz that he had during our interview back in January and you know, one of the interesting things about his story is that his mom is on disability. She got in a, a very serious car accident a few years ago and has and is unable to work so she had to quit her job as a nurse and Jurion is supporting his whole family uh, wow. with his NIL money and so you know there's a lot of pressure that comes along with that this is a 17 year old kid um, who's going to be moving up to Eugene pretty soon his entire family is going to be moving up there with him um, his older brother is a walk-on offensive lineman uh, who is going to be at Oregon with him and then his old his eldest brother and his mom will be renting a house near campus. So there's just a lot there. Yeah, and you mentioned in the piece that, you know, you mentioned uh, Rashada earlier who uh, got wrapped up in that story at Florida and, you know, ultimately ended up at, I think, Arizona State. But in Dickey, they, they sort of move in the same circle or at least the same seven-on-seven -seven circle. And I are the players leaning on each other for advice? Where are they getting advice? Uh, I know that Jurion talked to Jaden a lot about his experience. Um, when I spent time with 
jury on in January. That was right when Jaden's story was national news. Um, I had just gotten an ESPN text alert about Jaden earlier that day, I remember. <laughs> and it was interesting talking to Jaron because he, he had just spoken with Jaden, and he said that how everything went with Jaden was just kind of a reminder to him that, you know, there are some pitfalls to chasing the money. And, you know, it's understandable why people go after the money, especially if you're from a situation where your family doesn't have much money. But, um, you know, there can be there can be re- repercussions to that. You know, Jaden is someone who, no matter what happens with his football career, he will always be known for this. I mean, it'll be kind of like a black mark on his resume that he's going to have to address at the NFL Combine someday, uh, that he's going to have to field interview questions about. So um, no no 17-year-old kid wants to have to deal with that. But the interesting thing is, you know, unlike universities where they, they have compliance officers and things to at least walk you through the process of NIL, high school kids don't have any of that. So you're totally on your own. Jurion's actually relying on his older brother, who's a Cal grad, to, uh, to read his contracts and things like that. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, Connor Letourneau, San Francisco Chronicle senior writer, is with us. Connor, let me ask you, um, it's been described as a Wild West. You call it a Wild West in print. How different are these collectives when you look around the country? Uh, There's a very wide range, (laughs) incredibly wide range. Um, I know San Jose State, uh, and you know their their head coach is Brent Brennan, former Oregon State assistant. I know that their collective, which is pretty, pretty new, has almost no money in it currently because it's still in its early stages. Um, Compare that to a place like Tennessee, which they are striving to have like an annual revenue to dole out or annual contracts to dole out of 25 million. Um, And, you know, Texas A&M had a recruiting class last year that was reportedly $30 million. And some of these coaches like Ryan Day at Ohio State just openly – has talked to boosters and stuff about, hey, I need $13 million to, to fund my football team roster next season. It's a very, it's becoming very blatant, very open. And it's crazy because technically collectives aren't even supposed to be communicating with universities. Yeah. Uh, but the NCAA can't, doesn't really have the bandwidth to enforce this. So it's, it really is wild, wild west. I mean, it's like, it's not, not, there's nothing's being checked. Give me an idea because we've we've kicked around on the show different you know solutions to how do you how do you allow players to participate in this because you want kids to have the opportunity I think that ship has sailed but but not not get exploited not get put into a position like Jay you know Rashada did at Florida um, what kinds of guardrails would you recommend or what have you thought about as you're reporting because you're talking to people in this world. Yeah, so I have another story that comes out tomorrow that kind of focuses on the situation at Stanford. Stanford is really the only Power 5 program that has openly shunned collectives. They're not getting involved at all. And um, in that story, I get into some of the the potential solutions. Uh, You know, there's legislation that's kind of being bandied about that would be, you know, treating players as employees of the university, kind of giving athletes just a salary. Um, you know, there, there's talk about sharing revenue with players. Um, I think all these very well could happen. There's talking. There's talk about getting rid of the rules that uh, prevent collectives from actually 
communicating with the programs and just because it's already happening. So you might as well just make it official that they they're allowed to do that. There's talk about that, and then you know in terms of making it a little bit more of a level playing field because it it really college football is already about the haves and have-nots, and it's and recruiting in NIL has made that even more pronounced. And so there's talk about revenue sharing uh, throughout uh, FBS programs, and then there's talk about maybe a salary cap um, just to make it fair because the tendencies of the world, if it trends the way it's trending, are going to win all the national championships, and then the Oregon states of the world are going to have no chance. So that's where we're at. Yeah, I, I keep looking at it. I, I know that we've had a few of the collectives on this show. Some of them are very interested in getting to their getting to their donors. Arizona State, for example, the head of their collective, the Sun Angel Collective, wanted to come on the show because they have alumni all over the place, and they wanted to promote the idea that you know they're they're doing recurring sort of donations for trying to take advantage of the, the, the large number of alumni that they have all over the place. Washington State, Oregon State, very interested in coming on the show. Oregon, not so much. Division Street, close the circle, won't respond. Uh, you know, I've heard, you, you know, different things about that collective. You know, in your experience in reporting uh, on Jury and Dickey, did you get any insight into Division Street? Division Street came up a lot um, just talking to experts and stuff about the biggest collectives, and Division Street is considered – probably the biggest collective this side of the Southeast. Like all the other ones are, you know, Texas A&M, Tennessee, you know, those types of schools. Um, the, the Oregon's is by far the biggest one on the West Coast. Um, I've heard it's probably top five in the country. Um, and it's grown really fast. Um, Jurion didn't have much to say about that because, like I said, he, was, he wanted to kind of keep the details of his NIL deal. Uh, close to vest, which which is understandable. Pretty much every recruit wants to keep that stuff private. Um, but he, it was funny. He did tell me he was at Oregon and and he was sta- like at the the team facilities and he was standing right next to Phil Knight. And uh, one of the one of the assistants came up to him and was like, "You know who that is?" And Jerome's like, "No, who's that? Oh, that's Phil Knight. Oh, who's Phil Knight? Like, so that's just." <laughs> That yeah. just puts in perspective. Like, the average 17-year-old has no idea who Phil Knight is. In reality, he's actually indirectly getting paid by Phil Knight. Yeah. And he's got to, at some point, he'll figure it out and go, oh. Uh, and uh, Connor Letourneau is with us, San Francisco Chronicle. Hey, uh, great job on the piece. Uh, it's fantastic. I encourage people to read it. Uh, I have tweeted a link to it out. Uh, you can also uh, follow Connor on Twitter as well. Um Connor, the uh, uh, con underscore cron, like for Chronicle, is his Twitter handle. Uh, the Pac-12 tournament is happening. You will be there in Vegas covering some games, as will I. But you've got Stanford and Cal uh, that you're going to be keeping an eye on for the for the Chronicle. Now, Stanford's interesting because they can shoot it. They, they may end up in yeah. a second-round game against Arizona. They've played much better. But let's start with Cal and Mark Fox. A historically bad season. Will Cal fire him? Uh, yeah, yeah, he's he's gonna be fired. Uh, every everything I've heard is that that's going to happen. It's not official yet, but all signs point to him being fired. I, I think the AD there, Jim Knowlton, very much wanted to keep Mark, even despite everything. Um, but it just got to a point where it was untenable. Um, I think I think 
Jim Knowlton's job would be in question if he kept uh, Mark Fox because there's just so much frustration from the donor base and the fan base um, over how awful that program has become. So yeah, he'll be gone. Um, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, who they hire. There, there's talk about uh, Jim Pasternak, the the coach at UC Santa Barbara. There's talk about Tim Miles, who's done an amazing job at San Jose State. Um, so that would be really interesting. But Stanford also very well could have an opening here. Jared Haas is almost definitely not going to be leading the Stanford team to an NCAA tournament. That will be his seventh straight year with no NCAA tournament. I think the yeah. clock's kind of winding down on his do- tenure as well. He does have a – he has one thing in his corner that I – I was where you are. I was going, uh, you know, can they really afford to keep him? And then I looked at his recruiting class – and his incoming class has got some star power to it, and I wonder if that's enough to keep him. And Stanford, in your reporting, you mentioned earlier, they're not interested in NIL. How do, Stan- how do Cal and Stanford compete if they can't play academically in the transfer portal? Well, Stanford has an advantage in that there's just this mystique and this aura about going to Stanford. Stanford, you know, everyone just likes the brand recognition of Stanford, everyone wants to go to the smart school um, and, and feel that, and so I think that's the biggest thing Stanford has. Obviously, Cal's a really good school as well, but I don't think it has that same kind of cachet and brand recognition that Stanford has. Um, but you know, I've talked to a couple of the recruits who've signed with Haas, and you know, one of them, uh, Kenan Carlisle, is a five-star recruit out of Atlanta. We talked for like five minutes about him going to Stanford. He didn't mention Haas once. And I kind of get the vibe that a lot mm. of people who go to that program aren't necessarily going for the coach. They're going for the school. They're going for the brand. So I think even if they fire Haas, that Stanford won't have a huge problem keeping that recruiting class together. There's a lot of talk about them replacing Haas with uh, Mark Matson, who's done an amazing job oh, yeah. at Utah Valley, obviously. Local guy who was on – that really good Stanford team back in the day, I think he'd be able to keep that class together. So I don't think the recruiting thing should hold them back from firing Haas. And the reality is, too, it's like, yeah, it's great that he can recruit, but isn't that almost worse? I mean, when you're getting these five-star <laughs> yes. guys and yes. then not making the tournament every year, isn't that almost worse than someone like Mark Fox who just can't even recruit? <laughs> right. You've got the players. You, know? you still can't win. Um, look, yeah. uh I think of the two teams, Stanford is the more likely team to go on a little run in this event. They will have, uh, they are the 10 seed, played much better down the stretch, but they'll get number seven, Utah. They're playing shorthanded, six o'clock tomorrow in Vegas. If they win that game, they advance to Thursday's second round against Arizona. Keep an eye on Stanford. Uh, you you know maybe Haas will save himself in the next couple of games. Uh, Connor, I mean, he'd have to win. I think he'd have to win the Pac-12 tournament. Yeah. honestly. So, will they fire? <laughs> will Cal fire Mark Fox on the tarmac, or will Jim Knowlton wait and do it when uh, you know a day later in Berkeley? Has Mark Fox already started packing his office? That's that's what I want to know. <laughs> I mean, he's got to know. Um, so it's. I'll be there. I'll be there for what will likely be the final game of the the Mark Fox era. I'm sure Mark Fox will not be happy to see me because every story I've written about his program has not been incredibly positive. Uh, yeah. Shout out to you, by the way. John Canzano wrote probably the best story on Cal basketball in recent months, so everyone wants to check that out. 
Yeah, the Cal people, uh, the fans loved me. The the program hated me. The athletic director won't talk to me, but, you know, pass the beer nuts. That's how it goes. Hey, Connor, I'll see you in Vegas, man. Great job on the story today. All right. Looking, thank you, man. Looking forward to seeing you. All right. There he is, Connor Letourneau, San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, a wealth of stuff in that interview. We'll unpack it next. Plus, we'll talk about a little change. The NFL is trying to wiggle its way into the world of college football. Uh, how are they doing it? I'll tell you, coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. So keep an eye on both Stanford and Cal, according to Connor Letourneau of the San Francisco Chronicle. They both could be looking for new coaches. I actually think Haas at Stanford's going to survive. I could be wrong, but uh, I like the recruiting class, and I think if you're Stanford, you're dealing with a whole bunch of other questions right now as it pertains to college football and as it pertains to the media rights uh, ongoing saga, negotiation, whatever you want to call it, and as it pertains to, uh, uh, you know, brand new, they just hired a new football coach. Do but they want to have to go, go do that in basketball? Doesn't it remind you of the situation up in Washington years ago with Lorenzo Romar? Like, he was getting first-round picks. He had Marco Fultz, the number one overall pick, and they weren't winning anything either. Like, I know recruiting classes matter, but at some point, like, you could bring in the best recruits and you're still not going to win. You need to have a better coach in there. And like like the guest said, like, Stanford's going to get top recruits no matter what. doesn't matter who the coach is. So shouldn't it be where he should be out if he can't even coach these top guys? Should be, but then I look at the way Stanford played in the last third of the season, and I uh, I look and go, okay, if you're if you're Bernard Muir, the athletic director at Stanford, maybe you're looking at the way that Haas finished. Maybe you're looking at you know the fact that um, they've got a recruiting class that looks like it's worth a damn. But I'm just looking at the last maybe the last ten games of their conference season. They weren't bad. They started to play better. And I think if they had channeled that a little earlier, they had a win over Arizona, for example. Uh, barely lost Arizona State. Um, beat Utah. Uh, beat Cal badly, like everybody else is beat, beating Cal. Beat Oregon, yeah. Beat Oregon. And so I think you look at what he did down the stretch, and if I'm, I'm just putting myself, in the sh- I'm putting myself in the shoes of Bernard Muir. First of all, he's at Stanford, where there's not a whole bunch of pressure for the basketball program or the football program to win big. There just isn't all that additional pressure that exists most everywhere else. Secondarily, you look at Haas and you say, you say, okay, he's got a recruiting class that includes two really interesting and intriguing good players. You look at the fact that they played better down the stretch and they won some games, went over Arizona, went over Oregon, uh, you know, basically beat Washington, beat, you know, th- they looked okay, beat Utah. They looked okay in the second half of the season. But – uh, they they can shoot it, and and that's the that's the scouting report on them in this tournament. I I actually think they're going to beat Utah in the opening round as the ten seed. I think they're going to beat the seven. Then they'll get in there against Arizona. I don't think they have enough firepower to beat Arizona, but I actually think they're going to get through to the second round, and maybe that helps them. Maybe it doesn't. Now in Cal's case, Mark Fox is a goner. He is fired. He is more than fired. I don't even, I don't even know how you could classify it, but Cal had the worst basketball season in their history this season. In their history. And, you know, I, 
I was really looking at Cal and hoping that when I went to go do my sort of uh, look at why Cal became so bad this season, I was kind of hoping that I would find some reason that wasn't the coach. And there are some reasons that Cal's not winning. They're not funding the program. They don't have a practice facility. They're essentially practicing in the student rec center. So they have students who are popping their head in going, is this open gym? While they're, you know, while they're trying to practice. That kills you in recruiting. Like, how do you tell your players, hey, we don't have a practice facility, and, oh, by the way, there's going to be a bunch of people running on treadmills in the next room, but we're going to be practicing over here in this gym. So you don't have a gym. You don't have uh, funding. You're not traveling via charter everywhere that everybody else is traveling. Um, there are some bad things there, but beyond that, you know, Fox has had enough time here to get into the portal and try to do some other things. He just hasn't done it well, and he hasn't had, you know, when you're three and 28, it's more than funding. Like Oregon State, Washington State aren't, aren't tremendously funded programs either. But they're, you know, they're winning 11 conference games and 16 conference games. Uh, excuse me, 11 games and 16 games overall. You can't go three and 28 and expect to keep your job. Yeah, I also think. The fact that it's not his first year, right? This is his fourth year at Cal. It's yeah. not like he's a newbie there anymore. If it was year one, okay, you can give him a year to get year or two to you know rebuild it. But year four, man, you you got to have something. He's showing nothing there. I had some people inside his program try to compare what he's doing to what Sonny Dykes did with Cal's football program. We all saw Sonny Dykes play for the national championship in football at TCU, and people went, "When did he learn to coach?" Well, he learned to coach when he went to TCU. Um, you know, he knew, he knew how to coach before, but he was coaching with one arm tied behind his back. Now, it may, it may prove that Mark Fox is a decent coach, but it just hasn't worked at Cal. And you can't, you can't justify continuing this era. So I think this is his last game tomorrow. He's going to finish 3-29. and Cal's going to get beat tomorrow in the opening round as they play Washington State. And Fox will probably be fired on Thursday back in Berkeley as his AD. And his AG, Jim Knowlton, should just fire himself, too. I mean, he hired the guy. And, uh, look, Knowlton has a great reputation. He's a military. He's got a military background. He'd be awesome at Air Force. He'd be awesome at West Point. He'd be awesome at Vanderbilt. He doesn't work at Cal. He, you know, and Cal, I'll even go further. The university president at Cal has hired uh, athletic directors who have backgrounds in field hockey in wrestling and in the Olympic sports, they don't hire ADs who have a background in football or men's basketball where all the money's buried. So I think that's a mistake. I think it's a huge misfire at Cal. They have the wrong kind of AD who doesn't understand how to invest and how to build. Uh, you know, Knowlton has a great reputation. He's supposed to be ethically just a great human being in that way, but he doesn't understand football and men's basketball, and you can't have an AD in that position who doesn't understand those two sports. It just can't happen. Our big splash is coming up. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. University of Portland women's uh, basketball team has defeated Gonzaga today in Las Vegas. They won the WCC Conference Championship. They'll get the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. Uh, I'm looking at the roster at University of Portland. Seven players from Australia, three from New Zealand, uh, three from Washington, one from Oregon, one from California, one from Utah. going to ask uh, Scott Lakeham, the athletic director at UP, how that roster was put together. 
what is the focus at UP as it pertains to international players. Clearly, they're making hay with international players. Speaking of hay, the NFL is trying to make some more. Uh, the NFL is doing something different, and it is the subject of today's Big Splash. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, Amazon Prime will stream an NFL game on Black Friday next season. It'll be free, Amazon announced today. It'll be the first time that the NFL has scheduled a game for the day after Thanksgiving, though. They normally play some Thursday Thanksgiving days. They stay away from Friday or Saturday that time of year. They don't really get into Saturday games until the playoffs or the last week of the regular season when they know college football isn't playing. But this is the NFL poking its nose or putting its toes into uh, the college football space on that Black Friday. Uh, Oregon and Oregon State will be playing uh, traditionally a game on the day after Thanksgiving. Sometimes they move that game to Saturday, but there'll be some college football games that will go up against this NFL game. It is very unusual. The uh, NFL is going to do it. Amazon Prime, a spokesperson for them, say it's an unusual day because people have it off work, so it's an opportunity to expose fans to our broadcast. It's also Black Friday, and let's not forget that Amazon is not just in the business of trying to get commercials and monetize the NFL broadcast, but they're trying to get people on Amazon Prime. I will not be surprised if you can watch that broadcast and with a click of a button, purchase an NFL-themed cap, jersey, pair of shorts, pair of socks. Uh, feels like uh, we're in new space, doesn't it? Uh, Amazon will continue to stream Thursday night football. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, even with the games available only on streaming, the Thursday night football broadcast was the most watched program 13 times out of 15 weeks. Uh, one of the times it got beat was by Game 5 of the World Series. Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreet are expected to return as part of the broadcast team. Uh, but there you go. Uh, Black Friday is when uh, the NFL will be playing for the first time this coming season. Coming up, Scott Lakeham, the athletic director at the University of Portland, will be joining us to talk about the UP victory in Vegas. He was there. Confetti falling. Pilots dancing. They're on their way to the NCAA tournament. Lakeham joins us next to talk about that win and more. Leave it here. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. A couple of seasons ago, the University of Portland women's basketball team won the WCC tournament. It was a big moment for Michael Meek's program. It was a big moment for Scott Lakeham's athletic department. Automatic bid, going dancing. We all know what happened to the NCAA tournament in 2020. Canceled. Shut down. They didn't get to play. Got robbed. Well, they're back. Here's the final call as number two seed University of Portland upset number one seed Gonzaga to win the WCC Conference Tournament Championship today in Las Vegas. Just happened uh, just a bit ago. That'll do it. I can't believe we're in 
witnessing. What an upset. What an unbelievable comeback by this Portland team. They did a phenomenal job of playing together. They were able to distribute the basketball and get the looks that they wanted. This was a great team effort here by this Portland team. There it was in Vegas. Here to talk about it, the athletic director at the University of Portland, Scott Lakeham. He's on the scene in Vegas with his team. Congratulations. Uh, going dancing again. John, can you just keep playing that over and over for me? <laughs> How fun was that for you to watch? It was pretty, pretty fun. And you, I mean, you said what I was going to say. I think one of the most difficult moments that I teared up was three years ago when I told this same group that they weren't going dancing, right? That we had made it and the tournament was canceled. And now to see the look in the eyes of that core group and knowing that they're going to get to do it this year is just so special. Yeah, you, you mentioned that. I never really thought about the fact that you probably had to go into a room and tell them and give them and deliver them the bad news a few years ago. Yeah, there were there were some waterworks in that room that day. Um, it was not a lot of fun, but what we told them in that moment is, Mike and I, there would be other opportunities, but to be grateful that they had made it three years ago. Because, as you know, so many conference tournaments were canceled, and we were one of the last ones that finished. So they at least got to, to cut down the net and have that moment. And lo and behold, as I'm watching them mop up confetti here, we got that moment again today. Yeah, you're in the arena, and it, it was a comeback today, and there was a moment probably uh, you know, midway through this game where it looked like Gonzaga was going to run away. They were threatening to get up double digits and, and walk away with it. What turned in the game? I, I think our team believed. I, I was concerned, I'll be honest. We had a, a nail-biter 22 hours ago. I think what really helped is we, we ratcheted up our press big time, and got a very good Gonzaga team that, you know, they turned the ball over 24 times. And most of those uh, were in the second half. And we turned those turnovers into buckets. I think points off turnovers was 29 to 11. So that's, you know, that's your game. Into the game, uh, you know, you had the lead. You're, you're shooting some free throws with 1.7 seconds loss left in the game. Were you afraid to celebrate prematurely or did you feel like, hey, it's in hand? I'm not crying. You're crying. I, I may have been crying. I won't admit that to my wife, but uh, I, I thought we were. I thought we were in pretty good shape. And you know, you you cry for the kids that they get this opportunity. You cry for the the coaches that have worked their whole life to get there. And you cry for your ticket manager and your strength and conditioning coach and your athletic trainer and the people that work in silence 78 hours a week that nobody sees that are going to get to get on that charter flight and go to the NCAA tournament in 10 days. Pretty cool. Scott Lakeham with us, University of Portland Athletic Director. Let's talk about the roster. I Before the commercial break, I started looking at the roster. Seven players from Australia, three from New Zealand, three from Washington, one from Oregon, one from California, one from Utah. Uh, where are you on like the like how that roster came to be? Well, it's a lot like, you know, St. Mary's is my alma mater. It's a lot like Randy Bennett first built that St. Mary's roster where we had Haley Andrews came over by herself, you know, now five years ago, um, it was, uh, you know, a, a point guard that nobody else offered at a Division One level that believed in Portland. And Haley had a good experience and 
you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, right? Haley's from, what, five or 6,000 miles away? Uh, there happened to be a player from the same town as her named Alex Fowler that wanted to play with Haley. And then it, it just kind of come from there. You know, Haley and Alex have had good experiences. And uh, some of the, you know, the best junior national team players in Australia and New Zealand have followed them. Uh, and I think, and this is credit to Mike, you know, now we have, you know, Maisie Burnham is from Washington and Mike's daughter's from Oregon. And, you know, tomorrow in the OSAA semifinals in Childs will be Clackamas versus Beaverton with a, a UP scholarship commit on both teams. So the Australia pipeline is very important, but, you know, we're pleased as punch to be getting two of the top players in the state of Oregon next year too. Give me an idea because so much of the revenue from the NCAA tournament on the men's side is public. We don't talk about it as much on the women's side. How do the tournament units work there? Uh, or is this just, uh, is the funding that comes into your athletic department only come from the men's tournament? Uh, the, we get, other, and I have to look at the amount, um, but we get a stipend from the WCC and the NCAA that basically pays for travel. It's not much more. Um, all the tournament money goes to the conference, and then, you know, like Gonzaga and St. Mary's on the men's side, they get the lion's share of it because, frankly, I, I think they've earned it. This is one of the things, and maybe a future summer discussion for you and I, that I've been championing and a lot of other athletic directors as part of this transformation committee is there should be units as part of women's basketball. I'm not saying it should it should be the same amount of money. I think it should be a percentage of whatever the TV rights agreement is, but there should be something that, um, you can invest back in your program, right? Because, you know, we're not done. We want to do this again. But there there should be something in the long term, um, some sort of unit formula. And, I'm, you know, I'm disappointed we haven't gotten to figure it out yet. Yeah, and, and again, it would have to come with restructuring, expanding the tournament. Where do you stand on that? I've, I've heard different people talk about wanting to add, you know, four teams or 15, 16 teams. Uh, you know, where does where do you stand on the expansion of NCAA basketball in the tournament? I, I think we should expand a lot of a lot of sports. I, I just finished as chair of the NCAA Division One Women's Soccer Committee. I, I think we should add, you know, 24, 32 teams to all of those fields. And I, you know, especially with the Power Five. I mean, and I know you've probably talked about it on the show before. Those at-large bids are, what, 80% Power 5 schools now, 75%? I mean, you start to open it up. I mean, I look at we would have made it in baseball last year. We would have made it in women's basketball last year, right? Um, we would have made it in women's soccer last year. So I think I think opening up the fields is a, is a good thing. Scott Lakeham with us, University of Portland. Uh, look, you were around this team, uh, and you've been around other successful teams with Michael Meek. What is the secret sauce for Meek at, at UP? You, I think you and I had the same conversation at the arena three years ago. I've never seen a team play for a coach the way they play for him, right? And, and I, the things I wondered about him is, you know, that first year we won, we were picked last, we surprised everybody. You know, can you make it last, right? And we weren't surprising anybody, but we, we kept winning. Um, there's not many teams that press for 40 minutes a game um, teams haven't figured that out yet, um, but he's. And there was a night, and, and I think you wrote about it, you know, four or five years ago now, where I went out and watched him coach at George Fox one night. And I sat seven or eight rows behind the bench, 
And uh, I had never seen a team look a head coach in the eye and respond to him the way they were responding to him that night. And uh, it took me about five minutes to get hooked on his style. Yeah, really, really good hire. That has to feel good as an AD because you take the heat when you get one wrong. You got this one right. Yeah. Did you know it right away, or or do you just know it now? Well, I, I think I think we knew it. We knew it pretty quickly when we won the first year, and we've we've kept winning. Um, you know, they're, they're rewarding. You you kick yourselves for the ones you miss more than the ones you you get right, but. Um, it feels good to get them right, you know, with, with men's soccer and this one and, and baseball turning the corner. It feels good. Scott Lakeham, University of Portland. How will this team celebrate? How soon will we get out of Vegas? Uh, what are you guys doing now? You're, I'm assuming you're at, at the arena still. We are at the arena. I'm sitting next to the Gonzaga drum set in their band corral. You like the scene set, <laughs> sitting next to a drum that has a big bulldog on it. Love it. Um, we were doing a reception out front that we threw together, probably chicken fingers and French fries in the parking lot, and then we're uh, headed to the airport for a 745 flight to uh, Portland. And um, I'm going to go to the airport and uh, try to find a nice glass of scotch somewhere and enjoy this. I love it. You uh, you deserve it, uh, toasting you guys. Uh, but tell me before you go, kind of feels good to beat Gonzaga, doesn't it, in basketball? It, it does. I mean, they, you know. We have a kind of a kinship with them because we're the two WCC schools that are up in this part of the country, and our our departments get along well. But yeah, John, it feels real good to be there. <laughs> Scott Lakeham. Hey, congratulations! Appreciate you joining us on short notice. Thank you, my friend. All right, there he is, Scott Lakeham, UP athletic director. Did he say he was going to get a scotch? Is that what he said, Stephen? Ah, uh, yeah, that is exactly what he said. <laughs> He's gonna go have a drink. I love it. Uh, and look, you can hear the emotion. You know, Judah. You know, I. You know, I think we get Michael Meek on the show tomorrow. Let's get the coach. Let's keep the train Why rolling, not? man. Come on, feeling good. Scott Lake, I'm gonna go get himself a drink at the airport. That's great. Good for him. I'll join him. What time? What time? <laughs> he should t- tweet that out. Leaving Vegas, get a scotch on your way out. Uh, love it. It's a good story. Uh, NCAA tournament and uh, the University of Portland women's team. They are dancing. This March. Leave it here. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. University of Portland uh, will await uh, to find out uh, where they are headed. For the women's NCAA basketball tournament, they're in. They're dancing. They know they're going. Good for them. Great opportunity for Michael Meek and his program. And uh, we will wait to see if uh, the University of Oregon can make a run in the men's Pac-12 tournament that will begin tomorrow in Las Vegas. The Ducks get a first-round bye, so they will not be playing until Thursday. Play at uh, Thursday at 2.30 is their first game, and they will be playing the winner of Washington State and Cal, the 2.30 game tomorrow. Uh, I believe it'll be Washington State, and you believe it'll be Washington State, but we'll see if Dana Altman and the Ducks can make a little run. If they can get into the NCAA tournament, it's possible they could go to Sacramento in the first and second round. It's possible they could go to Denver in the first or second round, but we'll keep an eye on the Ducks. Uh, On that note, let's play some Punch It Audio. (laughs) 
in the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. John Skipper, uh, ESPN, formerly the big boss at ESPN, gave an interview in which he said he doesn't believe ESPN's out of the Pac-12 negotiation just yet. I will echo that. They are not out of the negotiation. I know that. Here's Skipper, though. Punch it. I'm not certain that uh, ESPN is not interested in being in the Pac-12 business. I know it's been reported, but I'm not certain that's true. I think that uh, uh, the ACC should expand uh, or should merge with the Pac-12, which now has 10 teams. I would take eight of those teams, change my footprint, have a 24-team conference, with a Western division and their ACC network footprint would expand to the West Coast. You could probably force a renegotiation with ESPN for a new deal and you could solve both problems. Uh, the ACC would get more money, expand its footprint, could compete with the SEC and the Big Ten. Yeah, look, if it were only football, John Skipper, that works. Hey, it's great. You could do that. But you got two problems with his scenario. The ACC currently is locked into a contract with ESPN it can't get out of. ESPN's got him in a headlock and has him at a bargain. Meanwhile, the Pac-12, I do believe, is still in play for the ESPN Tier 1 rights, for their Tier 1 rights. I do think ESPN's going to end up as the partner for the Pac-12. I've been saying that for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think Amazon slash Apple will get the rest that tier two stuff that we like to call the Pac-12 Networks content will go to the streamers. Uh, but I uh, I hesitate to go with Skipper's plan because it ignores the non-revenue generating sports that the Pac-12 and ACC presidents and chancellors care so much about. Two conferences that value academics, that value, even if it is an illusion, the illusion of student-athlete, Pac-12 presidents that I've talked with, including one on this show, Oregon State's new president, President Morthy, uh, talk about culture. They talk about academics. They talk about the student-athlete experience. Football, it works, totally. You could have a 24-team conference. You could spread it out. And hell, why stop there? You could have a 60-team conference and just drop the SEC, the Big Ten, everything, take the top 60 teams, put them in, the, put them in you know, divisions, let them play each other. You could do that. But what do you do with women's basketball, water polo, baseball, softball, track and field? You, you, there's nowhere for them to go, and they're not going to want to fly across the country in baseball and play a three-game series against Georgia Tech. It doesn't work. And so for that reason... Uh, and the fact that the ACC is locked into a deal with ESPN, I think uh, we're looking at seven, eight more years of kind of the same. And I do think the Pac-12, in short order here, is going to announce a deal. And I think they're going to announce that they're going with ESPN and Amazon slash Apple. See what happens. Ben Goldbrinson, quarterback, Oregon State. Talking with reporters from Beaver's Edge, they do a great job covering Oregon State. Goldbrinson talked about his competition, DJ Uyunglele, the transfer quarterback from Clemson. 
Here's the incumbent talking about the challenger. Punch it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, the DJ's a great dude, first of all, and uh, I, I always welcome competition. I think it, it only iron sharpens iron, and it's only going to make us better. Uh, you know, along with him and Aiden, and, you know, Travis and Dom, we, we got a great quarterback room. Uh, we all understand that, you know, we're all hard workers, and we want what's best for the team. At the end of the day, we're, we're going to compete. Look, uh, iron sharpens iron is the right attitude if you're Ben Galbrinson. I don't know that he has a choice, though. Ideally, Oregon State keeps Galbrinson around, and, but blossoms under the leadership of DJ Uangalele. Keep an eye on that. Steve Ballmer talking about the new stadium that they will open in 2024. And Ballmer, forgive me here, appears oddly preoccupied with the number of toilets that will be in this new arena. Clippers are getting a new arena, but they're also getting a bunch of toilets. Here's Balmer. Punch it. Toilets! 1160 toilets in Yardos. Three times the NBA average number of toilets in girls. We do not want people waiting in line. We want them to get back to their damn seats. Never before has anybody been more excited about toilets. That uh, includes Russell Wilson and his family who had 12 or 15 of them. Good for Balmer, good for the Clippers. Such a better owner than the last guy. Damian Lillard, upset at the officiating, had his third career triple-double, but uh, Lillard with a little bit of edge here. Punch it. We gotta, you know, we gotta fight for everything at this point. You know, we need every, every win that we can get. And uh, I just want to come out and be aggressive, you know, be in attack mode and you not know, really worry about, you know, the small things. It's just try to get it done. And, you know, tonight, that's how I play the game. You know, just go out there and try to uh, make things happen, help on the glass, make plays, you know, defend, you know, just do all the things that help you win a game. That's just, you know, my approach to, to win the game. I knew it was a back-to-back. -back. Uh, regardless of, you know, their record, they play hard. Uh, they put pressure on teams. And uh, you got to earn your wins. And, you know, it was uh, a game where we could have came in here tired and relaxed and, you know, messed around and let one slip. So um, I just wanted to be aggressive and, you know, try to set the tone. Portland is 31 and 34. It sounds like they're, today they're not tanking. Tomorrow I'll get back to you. 31 and 34. Same record as the Jazz sitting in the nine spot. Same record as the Lakers in the 11 spot, and the Pelicans in the 12 spot. It's going to be a big bit of a race for the nine and 10 spots in the Western Conference. For now, Blazers going for it. Jerry Palm, CBS Sports, talking about UCLA. Can they get a one seed if they don't win the Pac-12 tournament? Palm says no. Punch it. Well, UCLA, because the thing that's kept UCLA off the top line of the bracket is just the lack of higher quality wins. Until they beat Arizona at home, their best win this entire season was a road win at Maryland. And Maryland is a middle of the bracket team. So, you know, that when you're competing with Kansas and Purdue and, and Arizona and, or, sorry, Alabama, and the quality of the wins that those teams can stack, and all you've got is now a win over Arizona, that's quite, not quite good enough for me, but if they beat them again in the conference tournament, now, you, now you've got a neutral court win and you beat them two out of three, I think you've got a stronger take. Look, to get to that game against Arizona, UCLA probably going to have to get by Oregon. Keep an eye on that one. Dana Altman on that note, talking about getting to Friday in a potential matchup against UCLA. Frankly, Altman doesn't want to talk about it. He'd rather talk about Thursday, where they'll get the winner of Cal and Washington State.
punch it. There is no Friday if you don't play well Thursday. So you lay it all out there, you'll find the energy to play. I, guys, how we get this now? You got to win Thursday to play Friday. So you expend whatever you got to expend. Try to win the game as best you can on Thursday. And you'll find enough energy to play Friday. And if you're fortunate enough to play Saturday, you'll find enough energy to play there. Still, big advantage for Oregon to be in the top four seeds. They get to sit on Wednesday, which means the Friday and Saturday, if they do advance to Friday and Saturday, they won't be playing for a fourth straight game. Huge advantage for Altman. He talked about Washington State and Cal. Highly probable that they'll get Washington State in their matchup in the second round on Thursday. But here's Dana Altman. He says he did the work on both teams. Punch it. Got both teams scouted. Obviously, we've, we've played both of them recently. And so, um, you know, we've, we've got pretty good scouting material on both of them. It's, it's not that much of an adjustment. You know, when you're playing game to game, day to day. Game to game, day to day, it really just comes down to this Oregon season comes down to a kid like Will Richardson needing to step up. We've seen this in the past. Dylan Brooks, Tyler Dorsey, Jordan Bell saw them all step up when Oregon made a Final Four. Peyton Pritchard saw him step up, getting Oregon, willing them to the next round of a tournament, getting not just to the Final Four in his freshman year, getting him back to a Sweet 16 as an upperclassman. Will Richardson needs one of those tournaments. It's time for him to step up. He's been very quiet. He's been soft-spoken. He's been absentee in some big games. Big players, big moments. That's what March is about. And it's those type of comments by Altman that show why he's such a good postseason coach, right? Like, he's not going to look ahead to the next opponent. It's day by day, game by game, and he knows that. Like, he knows for Oregon to get to the NCAA tournament, they have to win on Thursday. It's not that they win on Saturday. They got to take it by one game at a time. And we talk about this with Dan Altman, like, has he lost it? It's these type of things that make me think, you know what, he's still, he's still got it. He's still a real good coach. He's really dangerous right now in a situation like this because UCLA is coming into this tournament shorthanded. No Jalen Clark, their best defender not playing. Oregon is coming into this bracket knowing it's got to prove something to make the tournament. It's not quite in yet. But Gary Parrish does believe that Arizona State – uh, has a path, and he believes USC is in. How many teams, Parrish, are getting in from the Pac-12? Punch it. I'm not certain. In fact, I'm pretty certain that, that beating Oregon State is not enough for Arizona State. I, I think they also have to beat USC um, in in the quarterfinals, and then maybe that's enough, maybe it's not. Mm. And that's that's one where I think you're you're still sweating it out through Selection Sunday. If you beat uh, USC in the quarters and then lose, let's say, to Arizona in the semis, you'll sweat it out. The question I would have is, does USC have to win that game? Right. Uh, I'm less certain of it. Like, I think USC can maybe lose to Arizona State in the quarters and still get there. But ultimately, here's what the way I think it'll play out. Arizona State wins its first round game, beats Oregon State, and then loses a close game to USC. And then Arizona State is is going to the NIT. And at that point, I think USC is is safely in the field. Yeah, look, Parrish is talking about something that, you know, best case scenario for the Pac-12, I think they already obviously have UCLA and Arizona in. USC likely in. So that's three. 
I've always felt like the best case for the Pac-12 was for Oregon or Arizona State to advance to the championship game and give the Pac-12 a fourth team. I don't think Oregon needs to win this bracket to get to the tournament. I don't think Arizona State does either. But uh, an Oregon win over UCLA, getting them to the championship game, win or lose, I think Oregon gets into the NCAA tournament. Same goes for Arizona State. So if you want to construct the best possible scenario for the Pac-12, already having UCLA and Arizona and USC likely in the field, the best case scenario would be Arizona State and Oregon on opposite sides of the bracket, both making the championship game. Now, that would give them five. I don't think that's going to happen. Like, I think it's highly unlikely. But I think the Pac-12, I can make a, I can make a case for the Pac-12 getting four teams in the tournament right now. And that case begins with Oregon beating UCLA in their potential matchup on Friday. Or with Arizona State beating Oregon State in the opening round and then beating USC in the second round. I think that gets you a fourth team from the Pac-12 in the field. Anna's going to pop into the studio. So much more to talk about. I talked to Dan Landing, the Oregon football coach, today for a bit about his defense and the identity. I'll tell you what I learned in that conversation. All that and more still ahead. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I love March. I love the madness of March. I love the fact that we can all sit around and we can talk about who we think is going to win and we can all pick our brackets. And in the end, we find out that uh, it doesn't matter what we think. Uh, the games have to be played, and the seeds sometimes don't matter. Uh, University of Portland knocking off Gonzaga. That's a two-seed over a one-seed. It's, it's not a monumental upset, but University of Portland and Michael Meek getting the automatic bid in the women's WCC tournament as they win the title today in Vegas. Scott Lakeham, the AD, joined us. He said, I'm not crying, you're crying. That's what he said. Anna's popped into the studio. Uh, he said he's going to get a drink. I think it was a scotch or a bourbon. Stephen, what was he getting at the airport? Yeah, it was a scotch. It was a scotch at the airport. Scott Lakeham going to have some scotch at the airport. Good for him. Is that appropriate? He's at UP. Why is that inappropriate? There's some religious background there. Catholics drink. They frown upon him having some scotch. (laughs) Catholics drink. Okay. Come on. There it is. Good for him. I love it. Make it a double. I love it. I don't know if you want to do that before you fly. I was on an airplane one time with a guy uh, that was coming back. Uh, this was years and years ago. I think it was during like the Desert Storm mm-hmm. War. Yeah. Uh, and he was coming home, and he was on a flight that yeah. I was on. They put the soldiers up in the front. Yeah. Uh, it was three guys. They were still in their their fatigues. Uh, fatigues. Yes. We call them fatigues. You know, you can. They were in camo. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And they were going home. Yeah. And they were uh, on this flight that I was on, and they were uh, they were going to have to transfer planes. Okay. Okay, so they were going, like, I was going to my final destination. <laughs> but uh, everybody on the plane was sending them drinks. And the flight attendants kept bringing them drink after drink. <laughs> Two of the guys ended up uh, running into the bathroom throwing up. Because when you get at altitude, your blood alcohol level. Yeah. It play it plays around with you. It amplifies the drink. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was such a good idea. People were like, oh, "Let's get these soldiers a drink." 
You know, you know, I go back and forth on the whole like drinking on a plane thing because you know, similarly to you, you have this thing where like if you're going on a plane, yeah, you refuse to wear open-toed shoes. Oh well, who like of course. Of course, I I refuse to wear open-toed shoes. And, Is that a hot take or something? I thought no, that was common knowledge. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because if I of have course, a, Steven. if I have to fight, or if I have to fight? get off, get off. I don't know when fight? I'm gonna have. To, I don't know when I'm gonna have to fight. I frown upon open-toed shoes most days. Right. If I if I'm wearing open-toed <laughs> shoes, I'm pretty comfortable that I'm not gonna have a fight that day. Okay. okay hold on. <laughs> what what exactly is the lot like? Is the combatant that you're encountering going to stomp on your toes? Oh, you can't fight with open-toed shoes if the other person has real shoes on. They're no moving traction. around. Yeah, no traction or anything. Yeah, what am I going to do, throw a punch when my flip-flops are flying off? <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, so then how does that translate to being on a plane other yeah. than the fighting aspect? Because I want to be prepared. Uh-huh. I need to be prepared for anything that could happen on that plane. Right. I've seen a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah. There could be any yeah. range of things that So be... getting to the emergency yeah. exit having closed-toed shoes might make the difference. It definitely could make the difference uh -huh. between me surviving a plane crash. Yeah. Uh snakes on a plane? You yeah. want to be in open-toed shoes if there's snakes on the plane? <laughs> there could be a rowdy <laughs> I've watched enough TikTok and Instagram videos like reels. Mm -hmm. There could be a rowdy passenger, there could be a Karen on my flight. Mm -hmm. Do I really want to be in open-toned shoes while mm -hmm. I'm trying to wrestle somebody in the aisle way? Yeah. Yeah. I, she uh, might stomp you with her Louboutins. Um so then and I bring that up because I go back and forth on the whole drinking on a plane thing. Yeah. Like I've only very rarely, you know, done that. Like usually it's on the way to Vegas or something. And but I like there there's an episode of Modern Family that comes to mind where the character that's played by Jesse Tyler Ferguson pops Can you say the some... person's name in the movie? Like in, in the show, family? I don't Mitch. remember. It's That's Cam, the red... Cam and Mitch. Mitch, yeah. That's the redheaded guy. So, and okay. they one or both of them pops like some serious medication because they've got anxiety about flying, and so unfortunately, however, their flight gets canceled. So they're just kind of wandering around the airport, um, really intoxicated on whatever substance it is that yeah. they took to alleviate their anxiety in the air. And so I I kind of wonder sometimes. I'm like, I don't know. Like, especially if we're flying with the kids, I don't want to be drinking because I, I need a clear head if something does happen. That's, you know? the, that's part of the reason why that I won't have a drink or I won't wear a pair of thongs on a... <laughs> on a uh, flight, I I need to be ready. Uh -huh. I uh, I don't know if you've noticed, Anna. When I get on the plane, I always sit in the aisle seat. I if you I do. if I can't get an aisle seat, it's it really makes me a little bit less prepared. But I'm in the aisle, and I'm watching everything. I'm watching everybody who gets up to go to the bathroom. I'm seeing like, are, what are they doing? What is going on in this do you plane? Play, do you play Find the Marshal? Like, uh, is that a thing anymore? I used to. You know? I used to. Not anymore yeah. as much. But and I know all the rules. And the and I feel for the flight attendants. I am a friend of the flight attendant. I'm kind of like, you know, like Seattle Seahawks fans say they're the twelfth man. Yeah, yeah. I'm like the fifth member of the flight crew. Uh huh. Like of the flight attendants. Yeah. I'm honorary flight attendant. And why? Why is that? Because well, I just see. I don't like people who break rules. So if the Fasten your seatbelt sign is on, and somebody's moving around. Yeah, I'm looking right away. Is she about to say, or he about to say, "Hey, reminder, everyone, 
the the fasten your seatbelt sign is on. You're not free to move around the cabin. Don't congregate in the laboratory areas. You're not allowed to do that either. How hard is it just to get your head on a swivel if you're a passenger in a plane <laughs> and look to see, is the light on down there? Okay, it's it's on. Don't get up and start walking towards the bathroom. You know what's really gross? When people take their shoes off on a plane. I can't. I can't. Unprepared. I can't do it. And then sometimes people will put their, like, uncovered foot, whether it's a sock or, worse, barefoot, up on, like, the seat, in, like, the seat handle in front of them. I think there's... Like, they're just yeah. propping their leg up you that Might as way. well clip your toenails while you're I up just, there. I just... Oh. I'm not, like, a germaphobe. But there's just certain things. I actually think you are kind of a germaphobe. You're the person who gets on the plane, you pull out the alcohol wipes, and you you kind of sanitize the entire area that you're going to be in. Well. I'm not interested yeah. in that. Yeah. I'm interested in living. <laughs> and so I'm looking around going, what uh, what could happen here? I, I actually saw a video recently. <laughs> living in uh, closed toe shoes, though. Yeah. I, I actually saw a video recently of uh, a, a plane where par a panel of the plane came off during In, the inside flight. interior like the actual fuselage of the plane <gasps> okay. had a panel disengage Ooh. while they were at 10,000 feet okay it left the plane there was a hole in the plane no anybody who wasn't seated in a seat belt on yeah it was a threat to get sucked out the passengers held on to the flight attendant whose body was like parallel with the ground like moving towards getting sucked out into uh, oh, never never land geez. and they held her yeah. until they were able to land the plane oh don't tell me this that. didn't happen recently it was okay. like a couple few years ago okay but i recently saw it yeah i yeah. saw the story and i thought you know what that's what i think about now yeah. last the other day we're and on the plane. yet you will you i look over and i'm like why don't you have your seatbelt on i'm ready to move and we're not like you know uh, we're cruising altitude yeah. but like, why would you fly? Most for of the time, I do. Any amount of time on that plane without your seatbelt. There was probably on. a reason. I probably got up and moved around. But you know, I'm I'm checking out. I'm checking out the doors, make sure everything's good. I kind of I'm that extra crew member. You know, you're selectively careful. <laughs> That's what it is. I'm here. For, I'm here to serve everybody else. <laughs> and I I intentionally don't sit in the emergency exit row. Why? Because I figure. Because hey, it doesn't lean back. Well, that's part of it. But uh, <laughs> another part of it is I figure the, those people are uh -huh. accepting the responsibility. Yeah. I'm just privately accepting the responsibility. So uh -huh. later they come back at me and say, where were you? I can be like, hey, I wasn't in the emergency row. Yeah. But I am acting. I'm, I'm high alert in An all situations. hero. I'm looking for all situations. And it's not just on planes. Like, like I'm in, uh, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a, at a hardware store. Uh -huh. I'm looking around. Where's yeah. the Karen? Is somebody trying to shoplift? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm diligent. Mm -hmm. you, yeah, we need you're people. Just always ready. You to need make, me on that wall. Always ready to make a citizen's arrest. <laughs> you need me on that wall, as Jack Nicholson said once upon a time. All right, coming up top of the hour, we got the five at five. I'll tell you what Dan Lanning told me about his defense, and I'll tell you next. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty the game. So I ended up on the phone today with Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach. His uh, spring practices don't start for a bit. Oregon State has started today. Jonathan Smith and his team, first spring practice today. Oregon State, just like Oregon, will get interrupted by spring break, and then they will resume 
Um, I asked Lanning how he felt about that. He said that ideally you like to do it in consecutive days and knock it out all at once, but this is the system they have and the schedule that they're on. His spring practice will begin a week from Thursday, so he begins on March 16th, which is the opening day, really, of the official uh, uh, NCAA tournament. Uh, I asked Dan Lanning about the identity, guys. Um, he says they've got a bunch of guys they've brought in on defense in particular that they think uh, are proven, proven snaps, proven performance. He talked about a guy like Popo who uh, really hasn't played for Dan Lanning on the defensive line. He's a holdover, but he was out for last season. And Brandon Dorless, Casey Rogers, uh, he, he really does think that they added a lot of pieces, particularly on the defensive side. And he thinks that the bigger improvements that they can have in the spring and into next season are all on the defensive side. He said, yeah, this is a direct quote, he says, I feel better about the group. He says, depth, we have, and then now we want to build on that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I thought it was interesting that he was keenly aware of what was going on, uh, you know, the, uh, the discussion, I guess the prevailing storyline that, you know, they didn't really have a defensive identity last year. Yeah, I wonder what he thought, what he thinks of, like, the younger guys on this team. Because you're right, they brought in a lot of transfers, right? Like, a lot of the big-time transfer portal guys on defense went to Oregon. I mean, Jordan Birch. South Carolina, Tyshee Johnson from Ole Miss, Evan Williams from Fresno. Like, those are big-time guys, and those are some of the better recruits in the transfer portal. So Landon goes out and gets those guys trying to make a quick fix. So I wonder I wonder how confident he is in these in the younger players that he was basically inherited uh, from the Mario Cristobal staff. How confident he is in those guys and that he had to go out and get all these guys in the transfer portal. Uh, you know, But I expect him to be better, and... They were so bad last season. I can't expect it to be worse, but yeah. But it was so bad last year, John. Like they, they that is the number one sign that they got decided they got to improve. Like we talked about the other day, we have confidence in their offense, which is something I never thought I would say with a Dan Lanning and a Bo Nix squad. Like if anything, I would question Bo Nix side of the ball, but no. Like I have a lot of confidence in Bo Nix. I need some confidence out of that defensive side with Dan Lanning to see what he can actually do. It was interesting because I told him I said, "Hey, I want to I want to write about uh, some." Uh, you know, some of some element of your team in front of the spring. And he said, what, Bo? You want to write about Bo? Because you know, everybody wants to write about Bo Nix. And I said, nah, I don't really want to write about Bo. I want to write about the defense. I want to write about the fact that you guys didn't have an identity last year. And he brought up right away um, Popo Amuvai. Am I saying that right, Judah? Amuvai? I think so. Yeah, I'm getting close to it. Um, he missed the whole season due to an injury. And so he said, basically, you get that guy back on your defense. That's a huge addition. And then he kind of went into all the guys that they're bringing in. Uh, Jordan Burks, who started some games in the SEC, Brandon Dorless, Casey Rogers. Uh, and he said, you know, Mace Funa, the big thing for Mace Funa is going to be he goes from being like a secondary star on the defense to having to be a star. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see if he can take a step forward and this defense can have some identity, so to speak. Um, by the way, we were talking about open-toed shoes on airplanes. This is how it works, Anna. We've got a Boeing executive from Seattle <laughs> who's listening listening to the show. Of course. <laughs> who wants to weigh in. Mike in Seattle. Mike, I appreciate that you listen. We're in your wheelhouse here, aren't we? Yes, you are. I'll say go bees. Um, yeah, so I've been on airplanes and I've been on evacuation drills where you must have your ankles taped and you got to wear high tops, you got to have long pants, and you got to be ready to go fast. 
and you're going to go down slides and you might catch toes. And if you're wearing Birkenstocks or flip-flops or something like that, you got major problems. So always be prepared, John. Always have your ankles taped and the I'm black tape, Connie tape eyes on and the, uh, the Gore-Tex pants because you never know when you're going to have to go quickly. No, all right, it so, doesn't matter how you look. you got to be ready to go. <laughs> Gore-Tex pants? You want me to wear Gore-Tex pants when no. I'm flying? Taping no, you gotta my wear long pants though. You gotta long wear long pants. pants. You gotta wear good jeans because you you do not know what's gonna happen even before you leave the gate sometimes. So, you know, people that take their shoes off on the airplane, that's a whole nother thing, right? And yeah. uh you know, you know, they go in the bathroom, they walk around, so I'm glad I can bring a little insight into yeah. the okay. whole thing about airplanes. I have so many questions for you. Hold the line. Um yeah. when they say it's now time to put your phone into airplane mode and they sound real serious about that and then everybody on the plane ignores them is this a security risk like if everybody on the plane refused to put their phone in airplane mode are we going to crash the plane well do you remember when they came out with the 5g coverage thing about six eight months ago and it was interfering you know with the telemetry and the guidance on the landing and takeoffs. Remember the 5G thing? Vaguely, yeah. <laughs> those towers and those phones, if there's enough of them and if they're all sending data around, uh-huh. uh, it, it, it can infiltrate uh, all the guidance systems. So it's a good idea to take off and landing, you know, to go into airplane mode, because then when you go, then if you connect to the Wi-Fi on the airplane, yeah. then you're not really in airplane mode. But a takeoff and landing, good idea. So there's no interference. Okay, good question one, Anna. Good job. Yeah, good question there, Anna. And I like how serious you got about it. Like, Well, then you know, I feel like if it really is a security thing, they need to emphasize this a little more. Like, hey, people, I, we're serious about this. If I, you want to make it to your destination, we really need you to be in airplane mode. I feel like that's John's job. He needs to go around and tell everyone, hey, yeah. airplane mode, airplane mode. Thanks. Don't guys. encourage well, him. Well, the other thing that people don't understand is now on airplanes, thank goodness, in Alaska especially, they have power outlets at every seat, power at the seats, right? Mm-hmm. And they also don't want your devices plugged into the seat power. So and that could also affect the safety of the plane because you're sucking Absolutely. energy no. from when, the plane. Yeah. When it gets dark inside that airplane, it's pitch black, and you got a bunch of cords all around, and they're plugged into devices, and then you're trying to get out real quickly, you know, with your high-top pennies on, you you can get hung up on those cords. So that's why they ask you to do that. Oh. There uh, it is. What's the next it, question? It, that's a good safety thing. Stephen, Judah, do you have a question? We have Mike in Seattle, a Boeing engineer who's here with us. <laughs> no, 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 not an engineer. Yeah, executive. So, sorry, Boeing yeah. executive. Uh, let me ask you. Let me ask you this one, Mike. Um, yes, sir. You, you know, we uh, we get people who get nervous on planes, and I will always yeah. reassure them. I say, look, if anything's going to go wrong, it's going to happen in the first five minutes or the last five minutes. Am I spitting truth there, or is that just a, an old uh, wives' tale? Uh, partially, there are things that happen in the air. That's why they always tell you that you ought to keep your seatbelt on, because it hits an air pocket. That plane can drop five thousand feet in two seconds. And everything you have inside that airplane is going to hit the ceiling, including your head. And there was some, um, there was something just happened. I think, I don't know, in Hawaii or someplace where yeah, um, it was Hawaii. It was so, Maui. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Takeoff and landings are important, but uh, they're a complicated machine. 
but it's uh, but there's more of a risk of driving home from the station probably tonight, you guys. Of course, there you don't go. work in the station anymore, though. Yeah, I got a so. studio. There's more risk of right. me in the studio. Anyway, hey, Mike, I appreciate your expertise, yeah. man. Thank you for listening yeah, and I calling in. Every day and on the podcast and when you call in to Pucket and Softy and all those guys. Nice. So Love it. All right, man. Thank Bye. you. Mike in Seattle. He's diehard, man. We we might need to take his number down. I still have so many more questions. Mike, I'm him. calling you from the plane. Uh, <laughs> I got a question here. Is it safe? You know. <laughs> I love it. Hey, it's a public service. Wear shoes. I'm taping I'm taping up. We're going to Vegas here and I'm gonna tape up for this. John's trip. Been doing jumping jacks before the yeah. flight. Gotta stretch out. I'm stretching out in the terminal. No blood clots. No ne- blood clots. Never know. You never know. Five at five is next. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I love the range of this show. I love that we start talking about airplane safety and my neurotic quirks at 20,000 feet, and all of a sudden we got a Boeing executive Who's calling in saying, uh, here's what you got to do. You got to tape up your ankles. I'm going to go. I'm going to get on that plane. I'm going to have pads on, <laughs> taped up, first aid kit. You know, I'll be the guy. Gore-Tex pants. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I go that far. But maybe some bear spray. <laughs> Bears on a plane. I actually think that that's what they should do to these Karens that we see on planes. You know, you always see the TikTok video, and you got the security. First, you have the flight attendants who are like, hey, you have to get off the plane. This person's very angry that they got seated next to somebody who is wearing, like, the wrong political shirt or something. And then the flight attendant says to the lady, you got it very nicely. You got to get off the plane. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going home. And we all know how it ends. She gets dragged off the plane by security. I think she should just bear spray her. <laughs> just clear the flight attendants to carry bear spray. Just right in the face. Take care of that. Uh, Then oxygen masks drop and the rest of us can breathe freely while the bear sprays in the cabin. See, I'm thinking this through. It's not just, uh, I'm not just spitballing. Uh, We're going to do the five at five here. Anna, are you ready for the five at five? Always. Five biggest stories going on in sports. Let's do it. The five at five. Number one story as Anna sees it is... Uh, let's start with the University of Portland Pilots. The women's team upset top-seeded Gonzaga 64-60. to They win the West Coast Conference Tournament Championship. They get the bid to the NCAA Tournament. Uh, this is three years in the making for those who follow the Pilots. They also won in 2020, but COVID won that year. Scott Lakeham joined us, the University of Portland AD, earlier in the show. He says he's going to celebrate at the airport in Vegas with a scotch. Here's how it sounded as the final buzzer went off on ESPN. What an upset. What an unbelievable comeback by this Portland team. They did a phenomenal job of playing together. They were able to distribute the basketball and get the looks that they wanted. This was a great team effort here by this Portland team. Overcame a lot to get there. Credit to Michael Meek, the coach at the University of Portland, George Fox guy, who uh, frankly got it done. Number two in the five at five, Anna. 
Congratulations are also flooding in for quarterback Daniel Jones. The New York Giants signed him to a four-year extension worth $160 million with $35 million in incentives. Begin the debate on whether he's worth all that. Nobody's worth that, but it's the NFL. Daniel Jones got the number. Four years, $160 million. Um, They're going to use the franchise tag on their running back, Saquon Barkley. So they struck a deal with Jones, trying to keep him uh, right in front of the deadline. The deadline today was 1 p.m. Pacific time for NFL teams to use their franchise tag. Jones gets $82 million guaranteed at signing as part of the deal. Uh, Now, Saquon Barkley will make $10 million next season under uh, the franchise tag. So, you know, they wanted to keep them both. They wanted to get them at numbers that they could live with. But Jones was the contract that was a key factor here. And, you know, uh, Barkley played a vital role. The Giants just trying to keep it going. The Giants were going to use their franchise tag on Jones if they couldn't get a deal. And that would have made Saquon Barkley a free agent. So, really... Uh, positive development if you're a Giants fan. Number three in our five at five. Right place, right time. Minnesota Vikings receiver K.J. Osborne is being credited as a hero. So he and three others were in an Uber over the weekend. Uh, They were on their way home, or he was on his way home from a workout in Austin, Texas, Mm. and he saw a car that had crashed and caught fire. He and the driver and the two others that were nearby pulled over to help when they realized how serious it was. All four of them rushed over to the car to pull the man out of the vehicle. Osborne says the guy was kind of in a daze. I don't know if he was conscious, but I think he felt the heat coming from his legs. And he obviously just got into a big crash, so he was out of it. They tried to talk to him and uh, rescued him from that car on fire. Well done. It's really easy to do a noble thing when it, it serves no risk to you, right? This did serve some risk to Osborne. And, you know, he put his life on the line to save somebody else. Good for him. Uh, right place, right time, as you said, and uh, a really good outcome. And I'll bet you he didn't have open toe shoes on either. Uh, K.J. Osborne, underrated football player, pro football talk says, but also an underrated human. Number four in the five at five. (sighs) Tom Brady settling this. Oh, what now? We hope. What now with Tom Brady? He says he's too busy for an NFL comeback. This is just a day after rumors began circulating about him unretiring again. He's saying on social media, anyone who thinks I have time to come back to the NFL has never adopted a two-month-old kitten for their daughter. Mm. He's using the kitten excuse. The ladies are going to love that. Next <laughs> thing you know, he's going to be riding horseback in the uh, in some Caribbean island. <laughs> Costa Rica. Costa Rican Puerto island. Rico. See, I just took that as him practicing his stand-up career. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what his game is right now. Said he's busy with a kitten. He went to an animal shelter and picked up two Siamese kittens for his 10-year-old daughter, Vivian. Is it bad that I immediately thought it must be an endorsement for, like, the SPCA when I, when I saw that? I'm just skeptical of anything Brady does. So correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
There's really no news here. Brady never said he was there unretiring. There was fake news, yeah. and then he's responding to the fake news. So now the five at five is things that might be true but aren't. <laughs> Don't be is mad at me. No, I'm not mad at you. I'm just, I'm just bracing for what's next. Since Brady's in there, number five's got to be LeBron. It is. It yeah. is, in fact, LeBron. Yeah. Number five. Here we go. Um, I, I like how TMZ Sports put it, that LeBron James is channeling his inner LeVar ball. He's declaring that his uh, 18-year-old son, Bronny, is, quote, definitely a better basketball player than some guys in the NBA right now. Oh, boy. You yeah. don't. You don't have to say that if it's really true. Uh, look, I. I think Bronny probably lives in a world that is patently unfair to him. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of benefits. He's obviously getting access. He's got great genes. He's got the genes of a generational uh, all-star and star player in the league. But uh, I think Bronny gets a bad rap, and I think people want to root against him because you know he's he's had this blessed upbringing, but. You don't have to say this if you're really better than some of the current players in the league. You don't have to say that. Like, I think LeBron is campaigning because he desperately wants Bronny to be uh, at a college on scholarship and uh, and uh, basically uh, play alongside him one day in the NBA, like Ken Griffey Jr. and Ken Griffey Sr. did. And Bronny is officially a five-star now. He got moved up to the number nine player in the nation. Yeah. Which I so think it's is pretty working? laughable. Yeah, it's working. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's definitely uh, buying the hype. But it, the, for everything, like, the stuff I read about him and how his potential NBA thing is going to fit, like, it's like, it's all about defense. Well, it's like, I, in high school, I don't care what your defense looks like. I want you to be able to score the basketball, and that's not what he can do. I, I just feel like some of it is on the James family that's like they're pushing this this narrative of, Le- of Bronny being so awesome and they're putting so much pressure on the kid. I feel bad for him. Well, speaking of cats, his actual tweet said, man, Bronny definitely better than some of these cats I've been watching on League Pass today. Maybe Tom Brady should adopt some of those cats. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> that's the five at five. Would that make your five at five? You're welcome. Tom Brady has adopted some of the cats that LeBron thinks are not very good on NBA League Pass. (laughs) And Brady's saying, I'm definitely not retiring now because I'm working with these cats in the driveway on their game. How am I doing? How am I doing at this five at five, Stephen? Is it time for my performance review? (laughs) There we go. That's the five. She wants to know how she's doing. How's yeah. she doing with the five at five? Can I actually I, think you've spiced it up. Can I get a performance review here? I'm feeling a little, uh, you know, a little pay cut coming for you, I think, though. I'll yeah. say this. I enjoy it because it's not the five stories I would choose. Right. So right. I, I, it's a different angle, which which is what you do for the show, Annie. You do this anyways. Like all the things that people say that are nice about you on the show, it's like you bring a different angle. You're bringing a different angle to the five of five. She, I, I just don't want anyone throwing stuff at their radio to be like, what is she thinking? Well, sometimes you bring up a story we've already talked about, or yeah, in yeah. some cases you'll bring up a story that's a day or two yeah. old. Yesterday's but news. I find it I find it charming. <laughs> and it and it gives people a glimpse into my life. <laughs> You know, when Anna will declare last hey, night. Did Anna, you hear Geno Smith yeah, got resigned? Yeah, Anna says stuff like that. <laughs> Anna, Anna last She's night says that late. it was late at night, and she <laughs> says, hey, Damian Lillard had a triple-double, like hours after. And I'm going, okay, <laughs> thank you. Well, there we were thanks talking for, about it thanks yesterday. Thanks for filling me in, you yeah. know.
but uh, you know, it's it's a glimpse into my life. Like people, my fr- I have had friends who say, you know, or, or people will ask you what it's like to be married to a sports guy. Yeah. Right? Will they not? Yeah. Pull up a chair. Yeah. You know, maybe you should get a scotch at the airport. <laughs> maybe you should have that kind of thing. All right, we're going to talk about Gert Boyle coming yeah. up. The the I guess what we would call her the pillar, the pillar of Columbia sportswear. She wasn't the founder, but in 1970 when her husband died, she had to take over operations. She was a mother of three, 46 years old. Her husband died. She had no idea what she was doing in running Columbia Sportswear. She built it into an empire. That empire had its best revenue ever in this last year. $3.5 billion Columbia Sportswear made. They've employed tens of thousands of people in the state of Oregon. Anna, what do you remember of Gert Boyle from back in the day? Because she passed away in 2019. But she would have had a birthday this week. She would have been 99. I just thought she was a marketing genius. Like, the way that they showcased her as one tough mother, like, it was a global brand, and everybody knew it, and it was brilliant. I don't know whose idea necessarily it was to do that, like, the black and white images of her and the TV ads and print. Like, that was was world-renowned, you know, what they did with that brand. And it, it's funny because it takes a minute to, like, figure it out and make the connection. Like, how do you connect her with a sportswear brand, you know, like rugged stuff that you want to wear outdoors in the mud and the rain and not? But um, it obviously worked, yeah. and it, it's it's phenomenal. I was looking at the images this morning. I wrote about it this morning at johnconzano.com. If you want to read me, that's where you read me. But I was looking at the images from those marketing campaigns this morning, and it was like in one of them uh, she's got a cigar in her hand. And it's smoldering. In an, you know, in another one, in one of the commercials, she actually took her son Tim, who's the CEO of the company now, put him in Columbia outfits and ran him through one of those car washes. <laughs> one of those car washes you drive through. Right. Ran him through there. <laughs> and another thing, they dropped him from a helicopter to just show how rugged the Gore-Tex is. I should be outfitted in Columbia on that plane. Well, and one of the one of the smart things that they did early on too was they started to have all of the TV reporters uh wear uh Columbia Sportswear jackets. And I remember being a reporter and lots of emails, lots of edict type emails going out like hey we have bit, we have you know made this agreement with Columbia Sportswear that all of our field reporters are mm-hmm. going to wear Columbia and don't you dare wear some other brand because that's the agreement that we have and if it, you know on the off chance that you wore a North Face jacket or something else like you would hear about it cuz Gert would see it yep. and she would call in and she would be pissed about it she'd be like what 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 why am I seeing some other brand on your air? Look, uh, people may remember in 2010 that she had an incident uh, at her house where they, where three people tried to kidnap her, and she's five foot three. She's 86 years old at the time. She's a grandma, and you know she arrives home to find a guy dressed in black clothes standing in a driveway with a fruit, fruit basket. Suspicious. She uh, she says, "I don't want your basket." Then he took out a copy of her book and asked her to sign it, and she said no. Then he pulled out a gun, and he pointed it at the back of her neck, and he ordered her back into the house. He was going to tie her up. He was eventually going to bloody her lip, and she says, uh, you know what? I need to turn off the alarm system if you're going to get me in here. And, you know, the guy let her go disarm the alarm system, and she hit the panic button and secretly 
the police, you know, got notified and they showed up and foiled the kidnapping attempt. And the kidnappers, I looked it up, he got 14 and a half years in prison for trying to kidnap Gert Boyle. Um, I heard the story about it after, though, that the police chief, you know, I wrote about it this morning, that the police chief stopped by the house to see how she was doing. Now, this was later in the evening after she gets home and everything's good. Um, and the police chief stops by the house, says, how are you doing? I'm told that Gert was sitting at her table having a glass, having a cocktail when the police chief arrived. And he looked at him. She looked at him. He had a North Face jacket on. And she said, I was doing fine until you came in with that bleeping North Face jacket on. <laughs> That's the most Gert story ever. There it is. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and uh, a lot, I think, to unpack here. Carrie Timchuk, who it runs the Oregon Historical Society and spoke at Gert Boyle's funeral, is going to join us next to talk about her. It's her birthday week. Let's uh, let's talk about a legend here in the Pacific Northwest. Leave it here. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I wrote about it uh, this morning at johnconzano.com. If you subscribe, you're reading me. You get it in real time, delivered to your email inbox. Uh, Gert Boyle would have turned 99 this week. Monday, yesterday, was her birthday. She died a few years ago, and uh, I uh, reached out to her son, Tim Boyle, the CEO, president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear today, and he told me uh, I still miss her like crazy. Uh, our next guest knows her. Helped Gert Boyle write her autobiography. Uh, if you haven't read the autobiography, um, I encourage you to take a look at it. It's called One Tough Mother. And uh, Carrie Timchuk of the Oregon Historical Society, the executive director there, a guy with a rich history in our region, uh, worked for and worked with a whole bunch of important people. Carrie Timchuk joining us to talk about Gert Boyle. Uh, how are you doing, Carrie? I still miss her like crazy too, just just like Tim does. She was, uh, gosh, a, a force of nature. Uh, you know, the Oregonian once described her as uh, the patron saint of Oregon, and I think that's a great description of her. Now, give me an idea because you you got to go through that process of writing a book with her. What was that? The process of trying to you know tell the story and help her tell her own story like for you. Well, A, it was just so damn much fun. I mean, I, di I didn't know her at all, and they had been looking for someone to, uh, to help her tell her story. And uh, Peter Bragdon, who was Columbia's legal counsel, knew me and, and knew I had done, helped my old boss's uh, Bob and Elizabeth Dole with some books. And he called me up and said, come out and meet her and see if, uh, see if you're a match. And I went out, and uh, we, were, uh, we were friends at first sight and just had uh, so much fun. And I just took her through her life. And tape recorded her, asked her, asked her questions, describe her life, and she. Uh, the book, as she said, is just like her, short, sweet, to the point, and it's just it's just her story and her words, and what a story it is. Yeah, when you look back at it, you know, and I, I've talked to Tim, her son, about this. It's 1970. Her husband passes away. He has a heart oh, attack. It's well, a sudden death, and you have, uh, you know, a 46-year-old mother with three children facing. You know, how do I run this company, or do I run it, or do we sell it, or what do we do? Um, when you talk to her about this in the process of writing the book, 
How much anxiety, how much confusion at that time, you know, as she recounted it? Lots. I mean, and she said, uh, he, you know, her husband had never been sick a day in his life. Uh, all of a sudden died of a heart attack. Uh, and she uh, was faced with taking over this company just after he had taken out a major loan with the Small Business Administration. And the lawyers came to her on day one and said, basically, how are you going to pay this back? And she just, she, you know, she described it. She said, you know, if someone asked me if I could swim a mile in the ocean, I'd tell them no way. But if someone took me a mile out in the ocean and pushed me over the boat, I'd start swimming. And she said that's what she did. And Tim, who was a senior in college, came home to help her, and they started swimming the best they could and didn't, didn't know what they didn't know. And after the first year, uh, the bank came to them basically and said, you're, you know, you're losing money. Sales were less than a million dollars a year, revenue. Uh, you need to sell. They found a buyer, and they were signing the papers. And the, the whole story could have been different, Columbia's whole story. They were signing the papers, and the buyer started a nickel and dimer and said, well, I want to change this. I don't want the zipper inventory. I don't want this. She did some math in her head, figured out she'd walk away with a couple thousand dollars. And she said, for that much money, I might as well run it into the ground myself. She showed the guy where the door was, told him where to go and what to do in, <laughs> in gir typical GERD language. And, and then from then on, she said, things got better. We're talking to Kerry Tim Chuck with the Oregon Historical Society. He's the executive director there. Um, you know, you obviously have got a rich history, uh, you know, serving uh, publicly and, uh, and otherwise uh, as as a speechwriter and legal counsel to Bob Dole, Senator Dole, chief of staff to Senator Gordon Smith. Um, where does Gert Boyle fit into the story of Oregon employment and prosperity and entrepreneurship? At, at the very top. I mean, just to think of what they did. Again, less than a million dollars of revenue and sales. And that wasn't profit. That was just sales. And you take away all the expenses and they were barely making even when she took over in 1970. And then to build it uh, with Tim's help to, uh, to what it's become today, and to do it with such you know, spirit and fun. And, and to answer Anna's question that she had, it was an advertising agency. It was Borders, Perrin, and Norinder, a Portland firm, who came to her and came with the idea of this One Tough Mother campaign where Gert runs roughshod over her poor son, you know, torturing him and, and testing the products. And Gert's first reaction was she didn't like it because she was a woman CEO in a very male-dominated industry, the sporting goods industry, the outdoor clothes industry. She was the, the only woman in the business, the only woman CEO in the business. And In fact, one guy called her up one time early on and said, uh, I'd like to talk to the CEO. She said, speaking. And he said, well, you're a woman. And she said, you know, I noticed that when I got up this morning. And uh, they, they, they thought highlighting the fact that a woman was in charge wouldn't be good for the business. Uh, but they tested out the ads, saw the reaction to them, and went with it. And that really helped change, uh, change the picture, along with the, you know, the same boat that lifted, the same tide that lifted Nike, the out, being able to dress more informally, to dress for the outdoors, to not be in a suit and tie all the time. Uh, that helped Columbia as well, and, and off they went. I heard the story today. I kind of wrote about the kidnapping attempt and then the police chief stopping absolutely, by our house. To absolutely true. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. absolutely true. Give me, give me though, the exact it, it, the recount. Like when the police chief comes by, 
Is Gert really at the kitchen table having a drink, or what is it? Was it the night of the incident? When was it? it yes, it was the night of the incident, and after everything had calmed down, and again, how this turned out so, so more and just awful. Uh, but because of her quick thinking of ringing the silent alarm and the police getting up there, uh, but it was at the end of the night. The kids were there, uh, you know, trying to calm. Everything was kind of calm, and the the police chief of West Lynn. Said I just came back, came by one more time, Mrs. Boyle, to make sure everything was okay. And she looked at him and said everything was okay until you came in with that North Face jacket on. And uh, only Gert would be able to, uh, to to think of that. And she took she took note. She was watching uh, back in the last not this this most recent governor's campaign, but the one before that when Kate Brown was running for reelection. There was a commercial, and Kate had a Patagonia on in the commercial. And Gert called me up and she said, have you seen the commercial? And I said, what commercial, Gert? And she said, Kate Brown's. But she's wearing a Patagucci. And I said, yeah. you mean a Patagonia? And she said, yes, a Patagonia. And she said, you need to call her and tell her that she, you know, she should be wearing Columbia or at least an Oregon product. And I said, Gert, no, you call her. And she said, no, you know, Kate, you call her. So I ended up calling the governor and told her she owed Gert an apology. And, and the Governor Brown, to her credit, called Gert up and said, you're right, I should have been wearing an Oregon prophet. I love that. Uh, Gary Tim Chuck with us, Oregon Historical Society. Um, look, uh, I'm nostalgic. I've got re great respect for people who have uh, pulled up the bootstraps and found a way. Gert Boyle, uh, not just a pioneer, not just a great leader, but like very adaptable human being. I mean, she showed that, yeah, it takes smarts, it takes guts, it takes... You know, it, it, you know, ingenuity, it, it takes, you know, but it takes real leadership. She was a leader, wasn't she? She was a leader, and it was, uh, she did what they needed to do to survive. And uh, she, you know, and what, what I loved about her is that even after they became successful, she was still the same person. You never would have known, you know, how successful they were. And if you back when they were just barely making it, I mean, she watched every expense account. She signed all the expense checks, and the same thing happened when they were successful. Uh, if you got a call to come into her office after you got back from a sales trip, she was going to question whether did you stay in this hotel? Why was there a cheaper hotel? Uh, how much you know this restaurant that was pretty expensive? She was watching the pennies, and because she said she watched them when they were just barely making it, and she needed to watch them again uh, when they when they were successful. And uh, just and the, her sense of humor. She loved the saucy jokes. She called me all the time with the with the latest joke, and uh, just was a. Just, and she nobody was Gert Boyle better than Gert Boyle. <laughs> and <laughs> the seat that I, I I traveled with her a lot and went around and had, had was out to dinners with her and to see the reaction of people when they saw her. You know, they just smiled instantly, and they always wanted. They always asked me, "Is she the same person?" that you see on the commercials, you know, and, and she was, she was, you know, she was tough, she was exacting, but a heart as big as anything, you know, a philanthropist, of course, she famously gave a hundred million dollars uh, to the Knight Cancer Institute. She tried to do it anonymously, uh, didn't want any credit for it, but when the press started to nose around and get close to the truth, she had a press conference with Dr. Drucker up at OHSU and said, yes, I'm the one, you know, I, I gave a hundred million dollars and one of the reasons I wanted to do it was to prove that there were women philanthropists as well, and women could give money just like men could.
99 she would have been this week. Uh, I'm glad that her legacy continues. Her son, Tim, now running the company as the president and CEO. Um, I, you know, some of the response I got today, Carrie, was from people who said, you know, it's great to see a family continue to run a business, even of that magnitude, to see the involvement of the Boyle family. Um, you know, can you speak to that a little bit, maybe? I mean, I know you're close with the family in general. No, absolutely. And Gerd would tell you that her one of her best, best accomplishments was her kids. Three kids, Tim, of course, is at the company. Sally Bainey, who uh, also a very successful business person in her own right, who owned Moonstruck Chocolates uh, for a while. And Kathy Degendorfer, uh, the artist, an artist in Sisters, Oregon. Who, and they all now have foundations. They are generous philanthropists. They're involved in their community. They uh, just, you know, picked up uh, from Gert and uh, really want to make a difference in Oregon. And Gert loved Oregon. Uh, she gave to so many causes from Special Olympics. Oregon was one of her favorite causes. Uh, to Casa, and the kids have picked that up. And and couldn't be any more generous uh, to the state. We're we're lucky to have Columbia, and Tim is one of the you know most respected executives in the state, CEOs, and just couldn't be a, a better person. And they inherited their mom's sense of humor, and their mom's love of the state. And of course, she one thing you didn't mention, John, was she barely made it here. Thirteen uh, year old, uh, escaping her parents' escape from Nazi Germany in the nick of time. Uh, they were Jewish. They saw what was going to happen over there, and they got out in the nick of time, and some family members didn't get out. Carrie Timchuk is our guest. I, I really appreciate you coming on, especially on short notice. I reached out to you just before the show today because I felt like, you know, I could talk about Gert Boyle, but I really wanted somebody who knew her and worked closely with her on her book to, to join us. Uh, I also... I did not know you were a four-time Jeopardy champion. That you should lead with that. <laughs> it's it's true. Uh, it's uh, no, I, it was quite a while ago. But yeah, Art uh, or uh, Alex Trebek was the host, and it was uh, it, it was a good time. So I, lots of useless information finally came to came to help me there. Uh, you know, John the Gert had two mottos uh, that she loved to say all the time. One was a little more serious. It was uh, do your best today. And if you don't do your best today, then do better tomorrow. And she lived by that. And her other motto was early to bed, early to rise, work like hell, and advertise. Love that. <laughs> it speaks to her work ethic and, and whatnot. Uh, Four-time Jeopardy champion uh, and the executive director of the Oregon Historical Society, Carrie Timchuk, is with us. Uh, for people who want to check out their, or get involved with the Oregon Historical Society, Carrie, how do they get involved or – how can uh, what can they see these days? Well, uh, the, online at www.ohf.org, and we're of course we are downtown Portland in the park blocks. Uh, seven days a week we're open. Uh, we're free to all Multnomah County residents because of a levy that Multnomah County voters passed. A very we have a permanent exhibit, of course, on a fabulous exhibit on Oregon history, and a very fun temporary exhibit there now to the end of the month from from the Grammy Museum on the history of Motown. And it's got clothes that the Diana Ross and Supremes wore and the Jackson 5 wore and uh, a karaoke machine where you can sing Stop in the Name of Love with the Supremes and just a lot of history about the iconic record label and the history of Motown. Love that. Carrie, thank you for joining us and uh, helping celebrate Gert Boyle, 
who would have been 99 she was, this uh, She was one of a kind, and I just, like I said, I know Tim misses her, and uh, all of Oregon misses her. She was, she was indeed the patron saint of Oregon. There it is, Carrie Tim Chuck, Oregon Historical Society. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Pepper Judah newbie and Steven with some questions. You guys can fire him back at me if you want, but I first want to point out Pac-12 CEO group, the presidents and chancellors in the Pac-12, they met today, held their board meeting. It was a scheduled board meeting. The regents at uh, Colorado are meeting tomorrow, and everybody got in a tizzy over an agenda item that says Pac-12 athletics update. It really is just an update, I am told, uh, as Colorado's chancellor, Phil DeStefano, will probably be updating his regents on what is going on with the Pac-12's negotiation. Uh, I also looked back and noted that this was the 10th time since last summer that the regents at Colorado have met and included a item on the agenda that uh, pertain to the Pac-12. So I don't find this, like I saw some people on social media getting uh, all worked up about whether or not Colorado was going to vote to leave the conference. I don't think it's happening. I don't anticipate that happening. Uh, I think the Pac-12 uh, CEO group is meeting and has met today, probably already done. And uh, I think they're, they're moving towards an agreement. I had one source in the Pac-12 tell me today that they believed that the conference would continue. This is this is a doubling down on the idea that the conference is going to come in above $31.6 million for their Tier 1 and their Tier 2 rights. Now, you and I both know we don't care what that number really is. We just want this over and done. And the things that I'm paying attention to when it comes to media rights are how long is the deal going to be? Will it be a deal that, you know, ends up expiring in front of the Big Ten's deal that, that expires in 2031? Does it, or does it go after the Big Ten conference? Now, if I'm the Pac-12, I go early. I would want that deal to expire in 2029 because I'd want to eat twice before the Big Ten eats again. Don't want to let them uh, get to the table before you do. So keep an eye on that. Uh, guys, can I pepper you guys with some questions? Yeah, bring it. All right. Bring it on. All right, here it goes. I want to I want to start with the Pac-12 basketball tournament. Who wins the tournament in your mind? And in a secondary question, what's best for the conference? What's the best outcome for the conference? Answer those two questions. Number one, I think UCLA wins the Pac-12 tournament. I do think UCLA is head and shoulders above everybody in this conference. And uh, you know, I know Jaden Clark is injured. He was the defensive player of the year in the conference, and that will take some time to adjust. But I just love the veteran leadership they have on this team. This team's made it. You know. Deep NCAA tournament runs. I love Jaime Hawkins. I think he's an underrated pro prospect as well. Like, I think this team is very talented. Mick Cronin uh, has them playing really well. I think the best thing for the Pac-12, and Gary Parish talked about you played it in Punch It Audio, like Arizona State, if they can beat USC, I think that's the best case scenario. I think if they beat USC, the Pac-12 gets four teams in the conference. I think USC is in, even with a loss to Arizona State, because it's not going to be a bad loss, but I think Arizona State has to get a good win 
That would be a good win over USC. So I think best-case scenario, Pac-12 gets four teams in the conference or in the NCAA tournament with an Arizona State win over USC. Cheer to newbie. Who wins it? What's best for the conference? Yo, sorry. Uh, screen oh, screen okay. one, of, one of them uh, callers. The, all right. uh, Who wins the tournament, and what, but and what scenario is best for the conference? I think the Andy Enfield uh, hate is, is going a little too far, huh? Mm. We, we didn't mention USC once today. We didn't mention USC once yesterday. And, you know, they look pretty good. And uh, I loved the the scouting report that uh, that, that your scout gave on com. I'm uh, forgetting his name, but he did. Andrew it. Martin. Yeah. He's- He's a good writer too, by yeah. the way. He's fun. yeah, he's funny. He's funny. I funny. Lo- I yep. love the, the uh, Rick Pitino references with each team along the way. That was great. But look, USC is almost like boringly steady right about now, and boringly steady might might get you this this tournament, especially with the Clark injury for UCLA. Uh, I'm gonna throw Wazoo in there too. This might just be Wazoo might just have the vibes this year with the women and the men. They just might have it. So don't look look past them. I think the best thing for the Pac-12 is Oregon winning this thing. I'm not sure if you mentioned that, Stephen, but the best thing is Oregon because then you get that Oregon brand back into the tournament, back into the dance, and it increases your overall number of selections for the yep. tournament field as well. So it's a win-win. I went to Utah on that Washington State pick. Like I think that they're actually going to upset Oregon in that second round. They're playing mm, really well. They could. They and could. Kyle Smith, I love him as a coach. I think they're playing really well. They got a you know. Great player, Muhammad Gay. I really like them in that second. They got round. a lot of length. Uh, they got a good player. They got a good big man. For for Oregon, it, to me, it comes down to Will Richardson, guys. And yeah. I think a big part of his legacy hinges on the performance on Thursday in that game, likely against Washington State, and then Friday, possibly against UCLA. Like, if we're going to classify Will Richardson at, in the same breath as Dylan Brooks, Peyton Pritchard, some other players that have – gone through Oregon, he's got to have great performances in those two games. This is it, man. This is it. This is the legacy-defining moment for Will Richardson in terms of performance. I saw a graphic that went around socials last week that he has played, he has appeared in the most games of any Oregon Duck player ever. More than Peyton Pritchard, uh, more than, I'm forgetting who the other guy was on that list, but um, I think it was Jonathan Lloyd. He broke Jonathan Lloyd and Peyton Pritchard's mark for most games played in as an Oregon Duck. He's been around for a while. He's been up and down in his career. And what we, what Dana's asked of him, what fans have expected of him, his own attitude himself. And yet, I know he's a good leader, and I know he is the barometer of this team, and he has been for a while. But you are not wrong. He is the X factor. Oregon needs the best version of Will Richardson this week in order to have a chance and make a deep run. I'm a little worried. Yeah. I don't I don't blame you because I think he has been a no-show, if we're being fair. He's been a no-show a few times in big games. And he, to me, he's the most understated, quietest star player that Oregon's had in some time. Like, I don't, I need to see some emotion for the guy. I want to hear his voice. I want to hear, like, you know, I, I don't want to go like, hey, Justin Herbert was too quiet on anybody here. But Will Richardson's been too quiet. Well, if Will Richardson was physically Justin Herbert, then maybe it'd be different as well. But he's not. He's not even that player either. Uh, but you're right. I mean, he's got to take care of the ball, and he's got to be consistent and uh, avoid the undulations that have marred his career. Steady Will gets it done for Oregon in this tournament. Yeah, I don't think they need like a, a great version of Will Richardson to win some games. I think they just, like you said, Judah, they need some steadiness out of that point guard position because they have talent everywhere. Like They are a really good, talented team. And 
if Richardson just doesn't play bad and he plays average and he's controlling the game and controlling the tempo, you know Dan Alman's going to want to slow this slow the game down. They're not going to run it around, uh, get the fast breaks going. Like they slow it down in the tournament time. So I, I think Richardson has to have just a steady tournament, and then Oregon's got a shot. But I, it just kind of defines his entire career at Oregon. It's just been up and down. John, I know you said we could pepper you, so I will. Yeah, here. Um I know you. I know that you like the Ducks to make a run here of of yeah. some kind. I'm that, picking them. I'm picking them to get to the title game, not to win it, but to get there. Then, as a thought exercise, what happens if they lose to Washington State? What does it mean for Dana? Or if I anything? don't. I don't think it means anything for his career. He's obviously. I think he's untouchable because of the Final Four appearance, and I think that he's long, got a really good recruiting ago. clip. That's a long yeah. Time ago. Yeah, he, but he's. I think he's got a great recruiting class coming in. There's a lot of excitement around it. I don't think he's going anywhere. I think it would just be disappointing if they lose on Thursday. And we would probably all chalk it up as, gosh, this season was so up and down, it ended down. Now, I'm picking it to end up because I like Dana Altman in a tournament. I like the way he coaches. I think I've seen him surprise in moments like this. I'm just not convinced totally that this team has every element it takes and and I probably wouldn't pick them to get to Saturday if UCLA was at full strength so I'm looking at UCLA as much as I'm looking at Oregon and I'm going hey uh, I think Oregon's playing for a lot more I think they'd be locked in I don't think UCLA can uh, I don't think UCLA should be a one seed without Jalen Clark and I don't think they will play like a one seed without Jalen Clark Oregon State, 10-point underdogs against Arizona State. Do they, uh, Come on, they got any shot? Can Wayne Tico pull some uh, conference no, tournament magic? I don't see it. it. And if Arizona State had not played better down the stretch. Now, Arizona State beat Arizona in that buzzer-beater game that was just wild. But Arizona State, when they are locked in, they trap you, they press you, they play great half-court defense. Um, you know, Andrew Martin called them uh, wild dogs uh, chasing a pot roast. Uh, they will force you to make mistakes. Their problem is they don't have they don't have a star. Like, you know, Desmond Cambridge Jr., really good player, closest thing they have to a star, but they don't have a star. Like, they don't have the, the Will Richardson guy. They don't have, you know, a Jaime Jaka's guy. You know, they don't have that. So they... I think they need uh, – I think they can get by Arizona State, but I think Arizona State – I mean, Arizona State will get by Oregon State, but I don't think they have enough firepower to get to, like, the conference championship game. They'll trip against USC or Arizona. One of those two teams will beat Arizona State. Is it, but, cr- is it crazy to think that Oregon State can keep this game close, though, because they are the, you know, at the conference tournament, neutral site, just a different eye line. Arizona State, we've mentioned this, not a great shooting team. Can, no. or, can Oregon State keep it close at least? I've seen Oregon State show up to this tournament you're and play. Smelling, you're smelling the plus ten. I just want the plus ten. Yeah, I think plus ten. <laughs> I think plus ten is the right play. I want to get you know confirmation. Um, I I think I don't I don't mind that bet because I've watched Arizona State probably as much as anybody this year, and I've seen them lay some eggs. And you know, Oregon State's not going to get Arizona State uh, jacked for this game. Like, they're not – I don't think Arizona State comes into this game circling Oregon State saying this is this is our game, this is our moment. And I think there's a chance that Oregon State could keep this game close. So I like, I like 10, 10 and a half. Can you get 11? Like, you know, I mean, I just <laughs> – I start thinking in those terms. But where Oregon State has had trouble is late in games. Like, you know, I, I think they, they've struggled to stay with teams. So I don't think so. I don't think it happens for Oregon State. I would take uh, – I don't know. Ten what, points. 
One final yeah. question about Arizona State. Let's assume they beat Oregon State, which is probably likely. Are they in the NCAA tournament with that win, or do they have to beat USC as well? I think they need one more. I, I, I think they're firmly on the bubble. I think they need to beat USC to get to, into the tournament. And, and in part because I think this conference hasn't given teams like Arizona State many opportunities to get quality wins. You get a quality win when you beat UCLA. You get a quality win when you beat Arizona. You get a quality win when you get you get USC. And that's been part of the problem for Arizona State and Oregon have really struggled, and Washington State to some respect have struggled because there's lots of pitfalls. You lose to Washington, it's a bad loss. You lose to Colorado, it's a bad loss. You lose to Cal, it's horrible. You lose to Stanford, terrible. You lose to Oregon State, bad loss. There are just so many more opportunities to have uh, a blemish on your NCAA tournament resume when you are playing in the Pac-12 right now. And so I don't think, from a respect standpoint, I think it's going to take beating USC for Arizona State to get in. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up next right here on 750 The Game, if you're listening uh, in the 750 footprint, Gonzaga will play St. Mary's in the men's WCC championship game. University of Portland uh, walked off winners in the women's game, in the women's title game earlier today. Scott Lakeham, the athletic director at University of Portland, joined us, grabbed that podcast, and grabbed the podcast uh, featuring Connor Letourneau talking about Jurian Dickey. Uh, Oregon's five-star wide receiver, or grab the podcast of uh, Kerry Timchuk talking about Gert Boyle. All of that uh, available in real time if you subscribe to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show podcast. You can get all those great interviews. Uh, guys, we didn't talk much about the Jurian Dickey interview. Connor Letourneau sort of talked about NIL. You got a kid driving around a Mercedes. Like, I don't think Oregon is going to love that. But I also think, you know, what did you guys make of that interview? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I feel like this is inevitable. Like, this is what's going to happen in college sports. But I also feel like you're right. Like, Oregon's not going to like that this stuff is out there. Like, I feel like Oregon, they want to be above it. They want to act like they're not a part of, you know, the big money with Alabama and SEC schools. But they are. They're they're right there with everyone else. It's another culture difference probably, though, between uh, duck signees and beef signees, you think? I, would, I, 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 don't, I don't foresee a beaver signee doing this out of the gate. I'll put it that no, way. No, but... You can't control somebody who's not on your campus yet. Right, and so I, I kind of feel for Oregon, you know, and I didn't bring it up to Dan Lanning today, but I, I you know, had I had the conversation with Letourneau in front of Lanning, I would have asked him, like, how do you feel about your guy, you know, driving around flashing, like, you know, the, his NIL status? But it's kind of the way of the world. Uh, leave it here. St. Mary's Gonzaga, NCAA tournament automatic berth at stake.